There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to episode 340, I believe, of the No Encore Music Podcast. I am hungover. I hate to announce. I feel like I've announced that way too often that like it's probably starting to sound like I've got some kind of problem. But I just, you know, I'm on holidays this week, so I had a midweek drink. And uh, Craig's also on holidays, but he isn't here. I am here in Dublin, in Adam's studio. Craig Fitzpatrick, however, has gone to Rome by himself for five days. His first time ever being there. Have you ever been to Rome? My co-host, Mark Conroy... I have been to Rome. My other co-host, Dave Hanwady, I have been to Rome once. Yeah. Saw the Sistine and everything. Was there with my granny, actually? Nice. Yeah. It's Not a cool just my granny, my whole family, but my granny was there. It's a cool place. It's I was nice there in 2005, of all times. I enjoyed it. Um, so Mark Conroy is making his No Encore debut on this episode. Mark is a journalist based in Dublin's Fair City. Uh, you have been a long-time friend of the show, and it's a long time coming getting mm-hmm. on the show. I think I've... I think I've like dangled the, the, the tease carrot and been like, come on the show. It's been the basis of our friendship. I, the, I'd be worried about the future of it now Now that I'm on the show. This is it, yeah. yeah. This could be the end of everything. Yeah. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, long time listener since day one. Since day since one. Since day one, yeah. Wow. I've, lis- I've listened to every podcast. That's I, I think so. I wonder if everyone else has. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Long time listener. First time guest, caller, host, yeah. caller, whatever. Um, uh, very excited. Yeah, I, well, glad to have you. Um, and you have picked the top five this week. It's top five action movie scores. Yes. What was the thinking behind this one? I think it's that's something we bond over, action movies as well. Well, you did you did horror movies already, and I wanted to do something to do with movies and music. And, and action movies, are, scores aren't really talked about the same way, maybe in the same esteem sometimes as 
you know, maybe more prestige dramas or horrors, even to a certain extent. But like, there's some, there's, you know, there's some great ones there, and I think uh, they don't, they're undersold a little bit. And I know we, we both love even our like two and a half star, three star action movies, um, which get us to get us through the day. Hundred percent, yeah. yeah. I rewatched Hard Target recently, starring Jean Claude Van Damme. Solid film. It's such a weird film. It's so strange. His name is Chance Boudreaux. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of his character. <laughs> He's asked why. I was happy with my review as well. What was your review? Because uh, like the the plot of the movie is that On like Letterbox, the, by the people, way. Yes, Letterbox. Uh, the plot of the movie is that it's there's a secret society of people who hunt humans. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's the most dangerous for, game. Yeah, yeah. And, like they can just do it freely in New Orleans for some reason. <laughs> no, but specifically, <laughs> it's a secret cabal of extremely rich evil men, and they hunt like homeless war veterans because they don't have families anymore or something, yeah. and they're easy to. You know, homeless people in particular. It's like you know, it's it's commentary on on the world's you know inhumanity. I suppose yeah. it's very very subtle. But my review, because it's like that, because it's the most dangerous game. I said, Chance Boudreaux, more like most dangerous name. Oh, nice, yeah. excellent, excellent. There's a there's a bit in the film where someone's like, "What kind of name is Chance?" And he goes, he goes, "Because my mama took one." And it's yeah. like, "What? Your mother took a chance?" I don't what get that, it. I don't. Yeah, what does that mean? Like. With didn't use didn't use protection. Yeah, I was about to say. I was, I was like, what the, like, what the fuck? Uh, he has a mullet in it. It's amazing. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about hard talker later on. Who knows? But for now, on the show, also this episode, we will have an interview with Dahio Droni, former co-host of this fair podcast, uh, renowned Clare-based musician. And I spent a few days. I was based in Clare for a few days this week <laughs> on my holidays. I had a very relaxing time, and while I was there. I was like, do you want to do an interview for the podcast? Because his new album, I'm Here Now, is out now. It was released last week. Go check it out if you haven't yet. It's getting rave reviews, and it's really, really good if I do say so myself. That is later in the show. Dahi will chat to us 30 minutes in the middle of the show. We can enjoy that. It's patreon.com slash noencore. If you love the show, if you like the show, tell people about it. If you love the show, tell people about it, and maybe consider signing up to the Patreon. Um, I know we haven't posted any kind of new episodes on there in a while, uh, as a, as we've said numerous times, I mean the, the the Patreon is really really there for if you love the show to support it. We are kind of you know at capacity as it stands. We hopefully will get to more bonus content in the future, but right now we're just kind of doing all we can do. And with that in mind, it's time to hit everyone's favorite section of the podcast. Hey, you heard about the good news? I mean, is it everyone's favorite section of the podcast? Can I make that generalization? I don't quite know. But what I do know, what is in fact concrete and what is in fact in the cold, cold concrete, well, not yet, actually. I think the funeral's a few days away. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, died last week. Uh, I was at Dahi's album launch. That's funeral. Um, the funeral's... <laughs> yeah, Dahi's album launch was fun. I did an intro. I was very nervous. And I was speaking a million miles a minute. Um... It's very nerve-wracking for some reason. But yeah, the news filtered through. Uh, you know, Mark, you work in the news. Um, mm-hmm. Were you working that last Thursday when... I was. Um, uh, I was... Uh, yeah, I, was, I wrote a few things about it for uh, where I work. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was It was strange. Uh, we were in a Dublin office and we also work with like uh, people in the UK. So it was two different kind of tones in the respective <laughs> offices, I imagine. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Restrained like, jubilation was, from some corners. It was a mad day because it was like the, the start of the day. It was like she's ill, and it was well, like. See, let's talk about that for a second. I know. Yeah, why are they talking about the queen? Because uh, there's a music connection coming up. Um, yeah. But the, here's the thing, right? Um, the news filtered through at around twelve o'clock, half twelve. It was doctors are concerned for the health of the queen, mm-hmm. and I was like, she's dead. Yeah. 
I was like, there is no fucking way. Yeah. Weekend of Bernie. She's yeah. done. I, I was like, it's over. Like, like I'm sorry. If they but like, released nothing about her ever. If, if they're ever like even hinting that she can't. We're slightly concerned about it. I was yeah, like, really? Okay. And then I came. Gra- gravely concerned as well. Really. Then I heard, oh, four o'clock announcement. And we were all like, you know, chomping at the bit to like get the stories out there. And then I, th- I believe it was half six when they financed. And once all the once all the respective family members had, had rushed home. I mean, like, you know, you, the, the reason I'm laughing is because you had all these insane images of like, you know, Prince Andrew driving into the mansion, like, like, like proper, you know, transfer deadline day stuff, you know, like, where's he going? You know, turning, turning up at the training ground, you know, like, you know, with with the club scarf. Um, So yeah, she's gone. It's over. Uh, A friend of mine did say something I found quite amusing. He said, if you were in the room when the doctor pronounces her dead, would you be the guy to step up and say, the queen is dead. <laughs> Long live the king. And he was like, I suppose you couldn't resist it, could you? I'm like, no, I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't resist it. Even even as an Irishman, I, I, I whatever. I went on Today FM on The Last Word uh, on Friday and I discussed this queen business. And the amount of fucking angry texts Matt Cooper got in from, from angry British people who for some reason were listening to this Irish broadcast. Anyway, why am I mentioning this in the music podcast? Because Kanye West has taken this moment in time the ending of an era to end all of his grudges. All of them. All of his grudges. Every single one. He said something to the effect of, you know, like, um, life is precious, releasing all grudges today, <laughs> leading into the light. So he didn't get into specifically who that applied to. But he he, had a po- I think he had a post afterwards. It was just a black and white photo of Queen Elizabeth. So it was directly related to that, yeah. right? Which is insane. So I guess that's Pete Davidson, Kate Cuddy, John Legend, uh, Various clothing companies, his own family. Um, I don't know what to make of this. Well, you mentioned it's funny you mentioned the clothing companies because today he just announced that he's like severing ties with Gap. So I guess it didn't last very long. Okay. <laughs> so all grudges apart from the one I will have next week. Uh, it, well, I think there was a few posts as well about uh, Kim Kardashian, of course, and he was talking about them posing for Playboy and then blaming Chris Jenner and saying that. Don't not wanting his kids to one day pose for Playboy and how he's he's addicted to porn and he doesn't want his kids addicted to porn and he's kind of vaguely blaming Kim and I don't know but he deleted all those so I guess that means he is starting to turn over a new leaf. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like we've talked at length about Kanye on the show and our current kind of feelings about his kind of current behavior, etc. Mm. And you know, it's it's upsetting. Uh, one would like to think that. It, it's just fucked up how it's become like I well I can't take that seriously. You can't take any of it seriously. Um, you know, and I remain, you know, sitting here wanting a new Kidsy Ghost album. Yeah, it's never going to happen. Me now. too. Very much so. Kid uh, Cudi, probably the last great album he did. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, yeah. I mean, like, there's a lot, a lot to like in um, in Donda. Oh yeah, Donda's good actually. Couldn't tell you about Donda too though, because I didn't get the stem player. Does anyone listen to that? Well, well, yeah, the stem player. Well, um. We'll move from one queen to another, uh, not Kim Kardashian, a queen in her own right, of course, but uh, Taylor Swift has lost her final attempt to avoid a trial in the copyright lawsuit filed against her by a couple of songwriters, uh, 3LW, the song Play is Gonna Play. Mm. So Sean Hall and Nathan Butler have accused Taylor Swift of lifting the chorus from their 2001 song, Play is Gonna Play, in her song, Shake It Off. So... I'm surprised that this is going to trial because mm. I listened to Play Is Gonna Play and there's really no melody, there's no, you know, it's just the phrase, but it's like, yeah. you can't patent that phrase, can you? No, I don't think so either. I mean, 
it is, I mean, it's nothing to do with the melody. It's it's just to do with the player is going to play, hate is going to hate. That's what she's being accused of cribbing, I guess. I think it's ludicrous. I mean, they make the argument, the, the reason it was pushed, put back to the trials because the judge had originally dismissed it, but then the lawyers had successfully appealed and said, no, a jury should decide, um, which, I mean, I, these things are a nightmare, I think, which, and then, yeah, it was only with the lyrical content. Um, and their argument was like, they were, compl- they're when the, the 3LW first said play is going to play hate is going to hate uh, they, they were arguing it was an original and unique statement and stuff like that back then today mm-hmm. it's common parlance which I mean I well at least at least when she made that song um, and then according to the defence or the prosecution I guess well, not prosecution yet they an expert testimony found <laughs> a substantial similarity between the two songs uh, and their lyrical phrasing and sequential structure um, now, I I just was like, how easy would it be for me to deconstruct the argument? Now, they're arguing that, like, at the time, it was unique to put it in a song, that phrase. This is 2001. So I just went, decided to Google this on dictionary.com. And this is the phrase, of what, what, what does haters going to hate mean? And if you go to the etymology, the term haters started showing up in hip-hop in the early 1990s. Uh, the Right Rhymes hip-hop, hip-hop Dictionary traces the term back to the 1991 song Psycho Beta Book Down by Cypress Hill. Throughout the early 90s, haters appeared in a number of other songs. The haters gonna hate we were uh, the haters and haters going to hate were sometimes known as player haters or player haters. I mean, it, it, you just put, pick this up and say that the, the phrase existed before 2001. Yeah. So it wasn't even original then. So how, what kind of arguments do they have? None. Really. What I don't understand, though, is this stuff costs money. And you saw the recent Ed Sheeran uh, case that went to like the High Court in London or whatever and it lasted for fucking weeks. Yeah. It's got to be very, very mentally draining on people. And, you know, I'm sure that the people involved here think they have a case, but it just seems very easily dismissible from my very you know armchair perspective but yeah. I mean like I who's paying who's paying like the fucking legal fees here because how like I get it in the sense that I will try and take down this sacred cow whether it's an Ed Sheeran or a Taylor Swift or whoever um, and get publicity out of it but again like it's it's one thing to say it and one thing to accuse and one thing to you know say it in an interview or put up a Twitter post or something mm. but to actually go to trial yeah like they want those residuals. I mean, that's massive. First of all, like that. I know, so, I, well, they're not going to get it. I'm ninety percent sure it won't. But that, there's also there has been times when that these have people have won and you're shocked. I guess it is American court, yeah, yeah. so anything can happen. But um, right. speaking of country music royalty, uh, I didn't go to the Garth Brooks gig. Shocking. Or gigs, plural. He's done three of them now. It's two left. Two left. Yeah, time recording. He's done three of them, um, and by all accounts, they went really, really well. People have unironically said they had a great time. I didn't really see much footage from the shows. Saw some stuff on Twitter here and there. I can't get over it. Royal Yellow. Uh, credits to Royal Yellow because, you know, he said what we were all thinking. He put up a tweet and he was like, I'm sorry, I just can't get over how dreadful the logo is. The logo, he's in the, Gar- the Garth Brooks yeah, logo. It looks like something like an. A uh, 2000 tech company or something that's already gone again. Gone. Like, it's just it's already it's been gone. It's dissolved 20 years ago. But yeah. like, so uh, he kept it since then. Like it's terrible. It's lowercase g. A giant <laughs> lowercase g. It looks like the G Hotel in Galway. Like it looks like that's literally what it looks like. And I, also, I did see though he made his entrance at Croke Park, and it was like the screens on the side of it had um, a big you know like Irish flags, or whatever. But then they had this thing where it was like the Amazon logo came up and it was like meant to be, the screens were meant to be a giant Alexa and it just goes, Alexa, play Garth Brooks in Ireland. And it's like, what? What does that even mean? I don't know. (laughs) 
Did, did they pay for that or is he just giving them I guess completely he, free PR? Surely there's a deal there. Yeah. It's Garth. There's always yeah. a deal somewhere. Um, by all accounts, it was great. He played Shallow with his wife, Trish Yearwood. Oh, nice. Shallow from A Star Is Born. Yes. Like he didn't write or anything. Yeah. Like, 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 what's happening? Um, I put up a tweet, you know, as I, as I oft do, and I said, um, as amidst all the Garth mania, let, let us all take a moment to appreciate that uh, Lost in You by Chris Gaines is a fucking belter. <laughs> it is a good song. Gary McGinnis and De La Rentos did not appreciate me saying that. He was like, it's soft rock nonsense. And I'm like, it is, but it's really good soft rock nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I, do that, do I know that. That's the only song I know by him, which is, is that embarrassing? No, no, I think that's fair. That's yeah, the only song like, I know as well. I mean, the other one that they people always sing, but I don't even know that one. By Chris Gaines? No, by oh, Garth. Garth Brooks. I don't know. I, don't know no, I, actually, I actually know no Garth Brooks. Actually. The Dance. You must know The Dance. Friends in Low Places. Friends that's in Low Places. That's the one I know. Friends in Low Places, The Dance, The Thunder Rolls. Hmm. There's like I think, the one with the controversial video with the domestic abuse. I don't know, maybe, yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, I remember Craig and I did this in the podcast before, and we got. Do we get? I think we got to five, so mm. I can't think of the other two. But I don't know. I, he just has this weird appeal that it doesn't matter. Like people don't go for the songs; they go for the Garth. Yeah, and they also go for a bit of violence, a bit of old-fashioned violence, according to uh, this. <laughs> this uh, well, this is this is kind of a court thing now as well. So I guess we got to be careful. But uh, this is a genuine news story that happened. Um, quoting the Irish Times write up here, I think, where it said, um, a quote unquote designated driver for a group of Garth Brooks fans. What a what a fucking gig to get there. Uh, at Saturday's satellite gig in Croke Park, so that was the second one, has been accused of breaking a Garda's nose during the Country Music Stars concert. So for anyone listening who's not from Ireland, Garda is our police force. On Garda Shiakana. Mm. Do you know what that stands for? Can you translate it? He don't. Is that embarrassing? Guardians I don't. of the peace. It's guardians of the peace. Oh, wow. Well done, Adam, in the background there. I yeah, know I, I, you know, I work for a website that you know we get press releases all the time. I use the phrase on Garda Shiakana all the time, and I, until I kind of looked it up, I was like, mm. oh yeah, what does it mean? And I should know that, but it's guardians of the peace, which sounds cooler. Yeah, that's like a good. I'm a guardian of the peace, <laughs> ma'am. It sounds like it's either two things. It's either like. Uh, the character, the characters in MC, like a new superhero squad, or it sounds like a fascist group. Guardians like, of the Peace, yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. There's no between there. Um, so a man, he's been named, but like for the purpose of this podcast, we're not going to put a name. Um, mm-hmm. 27-year-old man from County Down um, appeared before court on the Monday. So mm-hmm. fucking, this is like the FIFA, you know, you know the mm-hmm. FIFA court during the yeah, World yeah. Cup, <laughs> where they have their own court. Like this is a genuine thing. Yeah. When the World Cup is on, FIFA have their own court. There was a thing back in, I think it was the South African World Cup. Someone did something. They were like either selling fake tickets or something happened. This person was tried and convicted for like five years by in FIFA? jail by the FIFA court. What happens then? I don't know. I don't understand that. It's insane. <laughs> That's the power the FIFA have. So maybe Garth had a word. I'm sure. I'm sure Garth did know. But uh, so this guy was released on a thousand euro bail. Um, Cardi charged him with assault, causing harm to a Garda officer. Uh, However, this guy is denying the allegation quite strenuously. He was arrested at five past ten at the stadium, so that's an error into the gig. So, you know, not, not even mm. getting his money's worth here. He's a desi- designated driver, though. Designated driver. So, like, yeah. how, how, how are the lads getting home? Yeah. That's the real tragedy. Yeah. Like, the lads. So he's fucked up their like, evening yeah, exactly. massively um, here. Maybe you know, he was furious. He was like, I want a drink. Uh, et cetera. I want a drink. Yeah. And they're like, what are you going to do? Assault a guard. Four lads can't have a drink now. For the rest of the night because of him. His reply to the charge in, in, in court was, quote, I didn't do it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I saw this image of this person being, like, hanged at the gallows. Like, <laughs> like someone just completely on trumped up charges. Uh, he was refused station bail, conveyed in guard of custody until court on Monday. 
Um, yeah, so no uh, history of violence, really. No history of yada yada. Um, what injuries were, were were involved? A broken nose, said the guard sergeant. I mean, I don't like this person's at all times has maintained his in, innocence. Uh, a designated, designated driver group came down to Dublin, was sober at all times. Uh, the solicitor asked for CCTV to be furnished out of the video to show that he was not the assailant. So it's a bit of a mystery here. It's mm. a bit of a Scooby-Doo mystery. I just think the guard should have known what was happening to him when he went into the pit at the Garth Brooks concert. Like, that's what he should have expected. Like, I mean... I'm joking, but I meant, like, the big pit that exists. The thing I don't like about this story is it, it doesn't have the detail of, like, did this person just walk up and fucking... Yeah. Spark it, out a guard? Yeah, or it's so strange. did they throw a rogue elbow while yeah. line dancing? Yeah. And then a guard just got back, like decked by it. To be honest, when I read it and he was like maintaining his innocence, obviously it's all alleged. We don't know. I yeah. did kind of think maybe that, but we don't know. But like I, that's it because it was like it's got to be an accident, if, right? If it was like a physical altercation, there you'd think there'd be witness statements or something like saying like, "Oh, I saw this or that." But like the fact that it's something like it's so weird, the details and, and foggy. It sounds a bit strange. Maybe he's just some kind of a cab legend, you yeah. know, who you know, <laughs> just had it. I couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. The thunder. That's what it says in Dave's t-shirt right now. A cab legend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thunder rolls was playing and he was like, I'm head up now. Yeah. You know, the dance. He didn't need drink. He just needed the power of Garth. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell everyone about being prayed up? Please. Oh, yeah. uh, oh, how do I start? Oh, we, we all are, what's this, I guess you could transition from, from one American legend uh, superstar yeah. to another. So, like, uh, so uh, everyone's favorite prayer app is a hollow. Uh, I don't know, but I'm sure all your listeners are like well versed on hollow. I think it's called. Do you know the name of the prayer app? It's an app. I got ads for it. Strange enough. Yeah, I think it's called Hollow. And, hollow. Uh, <laughs> our very um, our, everyone's favorite. Uh, celebrity Catholic uh, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> uh, he is a big purveyor and hello, hello. Apologies to the podcast listeners who are probably Hallow screaming makes... <laughs> into their speakers right now. Hollow yeah. makes more sense. Hollow. Make... Well, hollow. No, actually, yeah, that makes no sense. Hollow makes no sense. Anyway, but uh, so for everyone's favorite celebrity Catholic Mark Wahlberg, he is a big purveyor and utilizer of the Hello app, and he will show up in a lads, and he will show up in these lovely lads where he's like, "You got to do the rosary. We always be with me, you know, guys. You know, I just see, you know, Jesus Christ, he grabs me every day, and like, and then he, it's really important for me every day. Stay prayed up. You gotta stay prayed up. You gotta stay prayed up. And that's my favorite thing to say. You gotta stay prayed up. Like, you know, it's perfect. It's you know, bring the Catholic Church into the late twentieth century. You gotta stay prayed up. Yeah, Mark dropped this on me on a night out recently. I I was saying, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I love saying. It. Anytime you want, instead of saying goodbye, just say, please stay prayed up. You gotta stay prayed up. You prayed up, Dave. Yeah, you prayed up every time. We, we went to see. We went to, we, we went to see Blackbird in, in Rathmines, or not Rathmines, in uh, the Lighthouse. Well, I don't yes. know why I, thought, why I thought of Rathmines. There is a pub called Blackbird in Rathmines. That's why That's I thought it. of that, because there's a pub called Blackbird, yes, of course. No, there's uh, a lot of things called Blackbird. Mark and I went to see Blackbird in the Lighthouse Cinema. So yes. We, so we needed to stay prayed up after yeah, that one. I mean, I mean, I was doing the rosary constantly to that movie, just mentally <laughs> prayed up constantly. It was just... You know, I couldn't believe that, that, you know, I mean, I did, I was an atheist before that movie, but during I couldn't, I, the only, the only, a movie could only exist in a world with a God, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you enjoy the movie? Uh, did I enjoy it? I was, I enjoyed the funny parts of it. I thought it was kind of dull, more, more so than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the experience with you. Sure. The, the, it was, the experience began as soon as we walked in the door because yeah. you had to take a photograph of somebody. Oh, yes. Of a man, of someone walked in with us, a man. I would say in his forties, maybe <laughs> with a hat on, and obviously I, a fedora style trilby. The great thing about him is, I think, feel like neither of us could work out how ironic he was being. <laughs> like, I mean, he, and he asked us to take a photo of him 
He gave me his phone. Yeah, and, and, I, oh, and Dave pulled. What, what did you pull? I said it was raining very heavily outside, so I I simply just did not want to do this. So mm. I said, "Oh, uh, Mark, here uh, you'll take the photo." My, I was like, "My hands are soaking you wet. Could, yeah. <laughs> My hands are soaking wet. <laughs> it was damaged the phone. Which they weren't. I assume they were your hands in your pockets. So then I had to take a photo of this man yeah. posing by himself. It was the weirdest photo photo I've ever taken in public. Against the yeah, he he's taking one against the poster of the of the, black, of the black ever taken film. a photo for someone on their own, especially in a cinema. Yeah, and he was doing like a James Bond kind of pose I yeah think. yeah and he's tipping the hat the, the yeah. way so maybe he was ironic but it was strange he's very happy about the situation yeah. you took I, a good photo I mean I'm just glad that I gave him that you know I'm glad I hope that he got everything he wanted out of Blackbird <laughs> and Michael Flatley who gave us our generation Citizen Kane Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. Um, we'll move on, though, back in the music world. Uh, just a couple of real quick things. Sam Fender has uh, called off his tour in order to focus on his mental health. Uh, he said, my friends and colleagues have been worried about me for a while. And he said, I've neglected myself for over a year now. I haven't dealt with things that have deeply affected me. It's impossible to do this work on myself while on the road. And it's exhausting feigning happiness and wellness for the sake of business. My friends and colleagues have been worried about me for a while. It's, quite, it's not going to get better unless it takes time to do so. So... I mean, we talked about Sam Fender, kind of just in passing on the show in the past, really just kind of saying that, you know, quite like some of the singles, interviewed him once, he wasn't really in the mood, uh, seems like a nice fella. He obviously, obviously had the whole Johnny Depp kind of faux pas recently, uh, but he seems like a good lad, mm. you know, hardworking lad, done good. And I mean, like, you know, it's, I guess it's notable that one of his big singles on, on route to his fame is a song called Dead Boys, which is about male suicide mm. in, in like his, in his life. And in, in his community. So, yeah. I mean, anytime I see something like this, and I mean, like, there's also a, a story this week about Britney Spears saying she's probably never ever going to perform live again because uh, she feels, uh, quote, pretty traumatized from the work on stage under her conservatorship. So you see these stories and you can't help but just, you know, feel very, very sorry for these people. And mm-hmm. again, you know, the the music industry, it is a grind. The business is a grind. Um Obviously, I've never been a touring musician. I don't yeah. know. But, like, I think when you see stuff like this and you see the reaction to it, you know, Fontaine's DC, for example, like, you know, praise Sam Fender, as have many others for this decision. I'm sure there will be some disappointed fans who want to see those shows, but it's important. I mean, I don't want to awkwardly tie it back to the Taylor Hawkins discussion that we had last week, but I was making the point I would bang the drum for more support yeah. for musicians and like if someone comes out and says this I think they should be back to the hilt so just wish him well wish Britney Spears well you know two music stars from very different worlds but clearly mm. both under the fucking gun at like, the moment it must be it's like I don't know like obviously I, I've had my, my mental health struggles as well but it must be so hard just the, the scale of, of a tour as well like to be the person to send it I know like they're millionaires and blah blah but like to be the person that it's all built around and have that, those expectations on you and not only that the actual the exhaustion of the tour and everything, but to have to be the person, it's it's all centered around and ha- and being probably very scared to open up about when you don't want, you can't do it anymore, and you don't want to do it anymore for the completely the right reasons. And this, and I thought his statement was really good, talking about how like you know I have to preach, I, I, talk the talk, so to speak. And I think it's, it's it, he wills a lot of people, like you know, other high level musicians will probably think about that. And like it's like it's completely the right reason to. Step aside. I'm also reminded of the, remember Justin Bieber a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. and he's done it again yeah. lately. Like yeah. he's cancelled more it's dates. Good. I mean, I wouldn't care if, if like. no. And I remember at the time when the Justin Bieber when when he cancelled dates because of exhaustion uh, and to focus on his mental health. I remember like Brezzy at the time giving out about this, yeah. and I was like, how fucking ironic. Yeah, you know what a yeah. shock. Mental health advocate king, and then suddenly <laughs> yeah. suddenly um, comes out and says it. Like it's like yeah, it's like just turns it into like you got to be you got you got to you got you got to you got to work. You got you got to make sure you tour to tour and all that stuff. That that attitude of like. 
It's like if you're a real musician, a real artist, it's like and no. you're, cost, you're costing money for the crew like, and all yeah, that kind of like stuff. All that stuff. That's exactly what I mean. Like that's what I liked about Sam Fender's thing. It was like he, he, he probably he, Justin Bieber probably felt that. Sam Fender probably feels all that all that random, all that circus around him. But like that's why he has to take take the few few weeks off or whatever. For Tory schedules as well. I mean, like yeah. post pandemic as well. I mean, there's a lot of catch up to play, and a lot of people are doing a lot of fucking dates. I thought it was interesting that Fontaine's DC were among the people who said good man because yeah. have you seen their tour schedule? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, they're on James Corden last night. Yeah, they were, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's crazy. And like whatever, but, you know, a band that I often, you know, throw a sly dig at for because I'm, I don't adore them musically, but, you know, I don't hate them either. But like, I looked at their tour schedule for the rest of the year and I'm like, that is insane. Yeah. I'm like, that is fucking mental. And I'm like, was that's like so hard on a person. to Sharon Van Etten's uh, Mark Maron recently and she was talking about like, just it's because of COVID like obviously they just have to fill as much dates as much in, in as short a time as possible to even break even even if you're a somewhat big band just like Sharon Van Etten or Fontaine's are like they, they don't seem to make much of a profit off these things they have to do it constantly well the way that yeah, touring is where the money is I mean like from, from what I can tell from what I've yeah. read over the years again I don't know the world someone can feel free to correct me but um People have said before, you know, I think even Slipknot have said as well, it's like you don't make money off your records, you make money off touring and merch. That's where yeah. that's where the money is. Especially it's, in the streaming age. Like, yeah, big yeah. time, yeah. So, I mean, like, it's. I just think that, you know, it's important when a musician, especially because last thing on the, on the whole Sam Vendor thing or Britney Spears as well, there's such a transference of energy there where it's like this person is giving me this song that makes me feel better about my life and I can cope with my situation. Yeah. Something like Dead Boys, for example, which I do think is a very powerful song mm. of that style. And even if it's just a pop song, like, you know, Britney Spears has some of the best pop songs you'll ever hear and they can obviously give you a massive fucking serotonin boost. Why can't the artists themselves then take a moment for themselves and be like, well, actually, now I need some help. Mm. So it's important to support these people even if, you know, you're either, you know, if you've any kind of reaction to it that isn't just one of pure acceptance. And I feel like most people do. Uh, lastly, as well, keeping it kind of heavy before we get to the action movie, before we get to the Dahi interview, of course. Um, I just wanted to mention this because I was quite struck by it. I think a lot of people were as well this week. Uh, Nick Cave has actually been doing some interviews, slash, there was an excerpt from a book in The Guardian this week called Faith, Hope, and Carnage, which is written with a guy called Sean O'Hagan. The book comes out on the 20th of September. So if any Nick Cave fans, this looks kind of essential. It was assembled from over 40 hours of telephone conversations between Cave and Sean O'Hagan that took place over lockdowns. So it's a big, long kind of piece. I want to just pick a couple of pieces out from it. Um, He speaks about... Uh, the importance of fans, um, I guess, kind of going along with what I was saying, that, that there is a relationship there. There is like a, you know, you might not ever have a personal interaction directly with these people, but like fans matter. And the love of fans can matter to an artist. And Nick Cave has said that as in the wake of his son, Arthur, who passed away um, a few years ago, Nick Cave said, as far as the fans were concerned, they saved my life. It was never in any way an imposition in terms of people like writing to him and, you know, kind of showing their love for him. Uh, it was truly amazing what you remember the acts of kindness. Um, he refers to a small but monumental gesture in uh, his home, well, his hometown, like where, story. He, where he lives in Brighton. He said, there's a vegetarian takeaway place in Brighton called Infinity, where I would eat sometimes. I went there the first time I'd gone out in public after Arthur had died. There was a woman who worked there and I was always friendly with her, just normal pleasantries, but I liked her. I was standing in the queue and she asked me what I wanted and it felt a little strange because there was no acknowledgement of anything. She treated me like anyone else, matter-of-factly, professionally. She gave me my food and I gave her the money. Uh, at this point, he has a moment clearly where he says, ah, sorry, it's quite hard to talk about this. And then he says, as she gave me back my change, she squeezed my hand purposefully. 
It was such a quiet act of kindness, the simplest and most articulate of gestures, but at the same time meant more than, uh, than all anyone had tried to tell me because of the failure of language in the face of catastrophe. She wished the best for me in that moment, and there was something truly moving to me about that simple, wordless act of compassion, which I thought was just fucking... I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm getting emotional right now. Yeah, like, I, I, mean, was, I, I saw this at my guests yesterday, the day before, and I, yeah. I, I, it was really hard. To, I, I was well enough, <laughs> like, it's so touching. Yeah. And, and him saying about the whole line, because I imagine... I haven't, I haven't dealt with that level of, of loss in my life, but I imagine it is one of those things where it can't be expressed verbally ever. So it's, and you probably have loads of people come up to you and you probably really appreciate all the people saying like, I'm so sorry for your loss, but they don't understand. And maybe this person didn't understand either, but it was just a, a simple, a, a, a squeeze of the hand, which is something yeah. that's not verbal. It's something, it's a connection there. And it's something like I can't express these things to words, but I, I, I just want to know if I feel how you feel. That's yeah, what's so lovely about it. It's amazing. Um, there's another couple of details in there where he talks about how when he made Ghosting, the record, and he said that, you know, his ass was difficult to make. And he said, not really because we were, we were fixated on it. And we, we had these uh, Malibu sessions and the guy's like, how'd you end up recording there? He goes, it was Chris Martin from Coldplay Studio. He let us use it while we while he went away and recorded down the road somewhere else. It was an amazing gesture. Um, and the guy's like, so you were cocooned in the Coldplay compound? And he goes, yeah, that sounds a lot grander than it was, though. <laughs> he goes, it was an incredibly concentrated experience, terrifying in its intensity, but not creatively difficult, not at all. We were mesmerized by the power of the work. Uh, he refers to, of course, the great Warren Ellis. He said Warren Ellis was just amazing. We're both bad sleepers. I get up at some hideous hour in the morning after going to bed at some hideous hour in the night and Warren would just be sitting there in the yard in his underwear with his headphones on just listening, listening, listening. Warren's commitment to the project, his sheer application was beyond anything I have ever witnessed. And it kind of wraps up by talking about um, how he was asked if he wanted to communicate something to his late son, Arthur, with the making of this record. And he said, yeah, to communicate something, to say goodbye. That's what Ghostine was for me. Arthur was snatched away. He just disappeared. And this felt like some way of making contact again and saying goodbye. So, yeah, once again, getting mm-hmm. sad, man. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's so much heaviness obviously attached to Nick Cave in recent years and in general. But there's so much grace. And I would encourage people listening to check out the uh, film One More Time with Feeling which was a concert film slash documentary made by Andrew Dominic around the making of Skeleton Tree. I have yet to see This Much I Know To Be True, mm-hmm. which came out this year, recently. I, I, yeah, very, maybe 2021, but 2022 probably Seems came out. Seems like it's kind of more of the same style, mm-hmm. but um, I was very blown away by that. And the book, as noted, where all this comes from is called Faith, Hope and Carnage, and it comes out on the 20th of September. And I mean, I'm sure it will be an intensely heavy experience, as so much of Nick Cave's stuff is. But it sounds like will also be quite essential. So well, well worth checking out. And also well worth checking out for much different reasons, of course. Uh, the aforementioned Dahi, the former co-host of No Encore, the very good friend of the show, and a man good enough to put me up in Clare for a few days this week. I greatly enjoyed my jaunt to the west of Ireland. And I couldn't leave. He literally wouldn't let me. No, no, uh, I, I couldn't leave without having a chat with him. But I'm here now. His new album, it's his third album. Um, it was launched a week ago. Uh, there seems to have been a really, really nice reaction to it, um, I think, in terms of, you know, just, like, people checking it out or reviews or whichever. Uh, I am biased, of course, as I have said numerous times, you know, it's a weird one when you're friends with someone who also happens to be a good musician because, for some reason, I feel that that's slightly more awkward than if they were a bad one. But uh, Dahi is far from that. His, his album's fucking lovely. I think it's a really, really beautiful album. And it's weird because I, I sent it to a friend in the UK and he was like, oh, he was like, it's a pity it wasn't released earlier because it would be perfect for festivals. And, you know, definitely would be. But actually, I find myself now, 
as you know, the classic cliche of the evenings are getting darker and a bit colder. I think Dahi's music actually suits the seasons, whether it is summer or whether it is coming into the autumn. This feels like an autumnal record to me. Um, there's a lot of emotion in it. It's called I'm Here Now, which we'll talk about in this interview. And it's very much a case of Dahi kind of, I think, arriving at like, um, I mean, he's definitely in a purple patch in terms of the music he's working on now because he's working on 15 different projects at once. But I do think it is the maturation of a songwriter, an artist, a producer, and someone who also is kind of weaving together this kind of musical family in terms of the people that he kind of brings onto his records, the talent he has available to him. I'll gush no further. Instead, I will give you a 30-minute chat. I, in classic Dave Hanratty fashion, I was like, we'll do it, we'll, we'll keep it to like 15 minutes. And of course it was 30. But it was fun. It was nice to record it on location in Clare in the kind of, you know, the place where Dahi gets so much inspiration from and indeed worked on so much of the album. So please enjoy this chat with Dahi. And then when that's over, we're going to fucking crank it up and talk about our top five action movie scores. Enjoy. Gotta get the, gotta get the clink across the, across the bay, right? Oh, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> nice. Amazing. So, yeah, lads on tour. Lads um, on tour. Here we are in a studio in Clare that you have been constructing for yourself in recent times. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to christen it right now. It's Dahi Studio X. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. That's good. My partner calls it the shed, and I'm very annoyed that she keeps calling it the shed. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. What? Uh, it's cool. Uh, this is my first time spending time in Clare. I mm. think I'm on holidays this week, but I'm doing the podcast because you know <laughs> Craig fucked off to Rome. So, uh, what do you think of it so far? Rome, uh, Rome. Yes, <laughs> I've yeah, been to Rome. Uh, Rome's nice. Clare's better. No, um, I don't the know. Rome, the Rome of Clare, Ballyvon. This is lovely. Yeah, yeah. We're we're in, we're in your native Ballyvon. Often talked about, and now I'm seeing it up close and personal. Um, <laughs> I've got like a mild, very much kind of fading away kind of cold, but I feel like my throat. I, I can hear my voice. I think I sound just slightly huskier than usual. You sound relaxed, Dave. I think you sound relaxed. It's been a relaxing couple of days. <laughs> um, so yeah, obviously, you know, I had asked you to to come on the show. And we were like, let's do it. And then, of course, the album's out now. So, of course, uh, I've already mentioned it on last week's podcast. I'm sure I'll mention it again in the intro here. I'm Here Now is the new record. It's record number three. You had the launch in Dublin last week. So I did. First thing to ask you is, uh, just how good was my introduction of you at that event? Not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. It was great. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the, my, my anxiety, beads, <laughs> beads of sweat. Uh, I, was, I was so fucking nervous, man. I, I was more nervous it than was, you were. It was a lovely night. It was kind of, you know, you kind of, people tend to do these things which they call kind of listening parties where they kind of get a whole pile of the media and everybody sits down. But I think you kind of, you can treat it differently. And, and what we did was we kind of, we got everybody in room who was involved in the record. And what's really interesting about that is that it kind of, you know, it's a solo record and uh, when I counted up like kind of how many people are involved in making a kind of a record like this like you get up to about like 30, 40 people by the end of it you know you've got all sorts of people who are working on the the, the videos you've got people who are kind of contributing to the record with vocals and instruments and stuff you had people who were doing mixing people doing the press side of stuff as well so uh it's kind of amazing and it kind of never really kind of brought everybody into the one room at the same time so that was that was really really good um and yeah it was really really fun i think you have to kind of mark these occasions now because everything moves so fast and you kind of send stuff out there and it just kind of goes out into the ether and then you move on to the next thing so i've kind of taken to trying to just mark the occasion in any way I can when I'm releasing something like this, you know? It's, uh, it's very important, I think. Yeah, no, and like it's interesting because, I mean, uh, 
when you first started out initially, obviously you're solo, you're totally solo. Uh, mm. You've collaborated with people over the years, no question, but it's grown. I mean, like, you know, I think one of the things I might have spat out in my big cocaine address, I wasn't on cocaine, just probably <laughs> looked like I was, because I was just very nervous. Um, I was trying to make the point that you've, you know, developed a musical family, I think, mm. over the course of whether it's this album, the last album, house plans happening kind of yeah. in between slash concurrently. Um what does it mean to you to go from someone who started out making me? No, granted, like you obviously, you know, so much of this record is about family. It's about your family. Mm-hmm. It's about your upbringing, um, and trying to honor. I think the people who would have put you on a path, essentially. But now, you know, you're working with established musicians, like-minded people um, who don't necessarily make the exact same kind of music as you. Like, like I, I find that I find the people who aren't on this one fascinating because it's like. It's like it's like a manager who has like a subs bench where it's like <laughs> he could have asked this person, but instead it was these four or five names on this one. And I'm sure, you know, who knows what the next stuff will bring. Maybe there'll be no guests or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, like, what does it mean to you to go from the starting point of you as a musician to now when it is so involved and you do like 30, 40 people you mentioned there involved the whole thing. Like I'm looking at like credits, you know, the end of a movie mm-hmm. and your music is getting more cinematic. So what does it mean to you now? Because, I mean, the record course is called I'm Here Now. We'll get to that title in a moment. But at this point, it being so swarming, I think, in a controlled way. How is it for you? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a kind of a couple of answers to that in, in a couple of different ways as well. I mean, I've been absolutely blessed that, like, I've kind of, I've done well enough now that, like, I don't actually have to worry that much about... Um, what the we'll say what the commercial what what the best thing should be commercially for a record so you know back when i was starting you know the number one priority was to make a record that was really successful for radio so that like i could get out there and people could know who i was and i could go and tour and this was the whole thing um and then as it's kind of gone on you kind of at the uh, there's two ships that rise at the same time i think you you gain confidence in what's what you find interesting in terms of production, in terms of music and being able to step outside the genre you've kind of been (laughs) assigned to, I guess. And then at the same time that's going on, you also kind of like, you know, uh, you, you you care less about trying to get that, like say that perfect three minute song or something like that. And you kind of, it opens up that rule book and kind of like throws it out. Um, I, I kind of, with this record, you know, it was kind of, <laughs> I was going to like a PR person who was going to promote the record and I was just kind of going like, there's no singles on here. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm kind of stuck here. There's no like absolutely perfect radio stuff. So you've got your work cut out for you. Um, but yeah, and then with that then as well, this this record was very much, you know, I kind of generally tend to lean towards people who are incredibly gifted musically, but are also sounders. <laughs> you know, it's like people that I would actually want to spend time with because you kind of, you learn pretty quickly that, you know, if you're working with different musicians, you're going to be seeing them a lot. You're going to be working with them a lot. And being happy to hang around with them um, is such an important thing. And I kind of learned that thing from, from Houseplants, to be honest. Like, that was, like, kind of our number one rule when putting a band together, you know, it was kind Would of, go for a point with. Would go for a point with, yeah, yeah. I think the way I've been saying it recently is, is like, if we got to the gig and the gig was cancelled, like, would we still just, like, hang out and just, like, <laughs> just do absolutely nothing? And that's, like, 100% true for for houseplants and 100% true for pretty much everybody I worked on this record on, you know? So I think that's really, really important. And and you get the best out of people who are enjoying themselves, you know? And, you know, I was like recording a lot of this in the Beekeepers um, and you're kind of both being the producer and the person working on the record, but you're also kind of being a host. And that was very much apparent when I was doing the stuff, you know, I would kind of get two or three musicians down and 
essentially just <laughs> get them to hang out and, and chill and have a couple of drinks and like, you know, have some nice food and hang out and stuff. And then music would just naturally start happening after a while. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like it's a it's an extreme version of the of one of the kind of main parts of when being a producer is making an artist comfortable. And that's kind of a huge thing that I would try and do when I'm kind of working with with artists. Like I've been in situations before where like, you know, I'll get a vocalist on a, re- on a record and like the vocalist will come in and the producer or the recorder and the engineer in the recording studio will be like, OK, we've got one hour to do this. <laughs> and like the, the vocalist just like completely freezes up. freezes up and just panics and kind of you just don't get the best results out in in that kind of um in that kind of environment and that's 100% what beekeepers is all about and 100% what I would be doing when I'm kind of producing my own records you know so yeah yeah so i mean with regards to i was just thinking back how you're talking about like you know not having to write the 3 minute song for radio <laughs> that that doesn't really kind of bother you anymore so to speak yeah did it ever? Because I mean, like you know, the first time I met you, um, I interviewed you like at Lechbertnik for Hot Press, and I think I mentioned like you know you were once billed as like Ireland's answer to Calvin Harris. You know, you yeah, had yeah. the Sony deal. Chameleon Life was like one of the first dog songs I'd ever heard, and like that's not the guy <laughs> yeah. he's sitting opposite me today. So, do you recognize that guy? And like, what would you say to that kid uh, now? I mean, I wanted a different thing then. I think probably yeah. You kind of you reshape kind of what you're looking for in music over time. And I think a lot of it comes from maturity, you know, um, when you're starting out and, uh, you know, you're kind of in your early 20s and you've just been signed to a record label and like, it's this big major record label and it's like this big deal and it's like, holy shit, like this is going to be the moment. And, you like, promise the world. You yeah, promise the world and then you there's a pressure on you then to kind of go like, okay, well, I'm working for this record label. I'm not working for me anymore. This is like a thing. Um and like, so, so that, that kind of sets in stone a kind of a certain kind of style. And then I, I, to be honest, like, I mean, I was into that type of music at that time as well. It was kind of, um, I, I was into that kind of extremely heavy high octane dance music, which is kind of still am, but it, it's kind of developed as my taste has developed, I think. Um, and I mean, my number one problem at that point was that, um, the music that I was making at that time, uh, was, um, uh, heavily inspired by everything else around me <laughs> and and a lot of music that was very very similar to it at the time you know you were trying to sound like a specific sound that sounded like uh something on the radio I believe, something that was there I believe there's a term for that die and it's trend chasing trend chasing that's very good yeah <laughs> I didn't absolutely come up with it. <laughs> yeah that's good uh yeah trend chasing and and you know i mean i hadn't i hadn't found my my whole thing yet which is basically you know, I'm taking parts of myself and my culture and stuff and trying to turn it into stuff that that suits electronic music. And that didn't come at that point, you know, like I kind of, I did a lot of my kind of coming up through the music scene in public because I was like doing a lot of this stuff, but I hadn't found my, like my sound, you know, when a musician says, oh, okay, this is my sound. Like I hadn't found that yet. Mm. And and I hadn't even started to find that yet. Like I had to, I had to go through a whole pile of failure <laughs> to kind of, to get that and then, and then I went, once I got to kind of Mary Keane's introduction, that kind of time, then it started like shaping kind of and understanding what actually like what what I could do that was different for everybody else and what I could kind of give to people that would be different. Um, and that's developed over years, obviously, and the sound has developed over years. But um, You could have taken the other path, though, I guess. Would, would that be mm. depressing if you were like, hey, I'm fucking I'm buying a gold boat, but yeah. <laughs> these, these songs are not anything I care about. I mean, the the, the true test is that like, you know, um, I can listen to the rec- the songs off Loss 
totally fine and I like I totally like them and I still like them even now even this far far away from them you know I still like them but if I listen to the first record there's songs that I really don't like on it and I think that's like a true test it's like if you can look back on stuff and kind of go yeah that's that was actually good and I'm actually proud of that then I mean that's your sign right that's your sign that you're doing something kind of longer lasting than than the trend chasing I suppose is that like reflected in the title because I want to throw a couple of things uh, so I'm interviewing you after the album's come out mm. go stream it everybody mm-hmm. um, I do like it um, and that's one of the things I said at the launch I said yeah, yeah. it doesn't suck I like it it doesn't suck I said, yeah. it doesn't suck and I was, like, I was like put it on the poster what a relief imagine <laughs> if you said it sucks it sucks I, anyway here it is <laughs> what are you all doing here <laughs> there's no free drink um, no it was, it was a lovely evening uh, everyone had a great time but um, no so what I was going to say was given that I'm interviewing you in the post and obviously look we are friends so like you know you know what? What can I say? Like, I mean, like, I like the album, so yeah. I've give you. I, I, I try and give you something of a hard time. So, <laughs> yeah, let me throw like a couple of notices that came your way critically. Um, Great, yeah. Two different reviews I read. Bullshit. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. They're positive. Um, they no, did no. say at least two different reviewers said like, you know, the title "I'm Here Now" it's like a spoiler for what the album's about or something. And I was like, and like you and I worked on like the kind of finding it like I interviewed you about the album for like press notes and stuff but yeah. I mean like that never really kind of came into my mind I mean like what what when you read that in a, in a review and someone says yeah. the title is a spoiler you know you know do, is it I mean like is, is it really like like what does because I think you told me that the, the title kind of came to you out of nowhere and you're like that's it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, and it did like so basically I was just like driving along in the car one day thinking about the record and then it was just like I'm here now and I was like yeah that's that's actually exactly what the record is and it, and it's because it's like I think it, it, you know, obviously I'm here now, like it, it, you can kind of, you can kind of take it in three or four different ways, which is kind of the best way to name of, of anything. Do you know what I mean? Like if you have like, I'm here now can mean like, you know, my sound engineer thinks it's like, you know, I'm sending a text to somebody and kind of going like, okay, I'm here now, I'll meet you yeah. here like <laughs> with my record, like, you know, uh, and then for me, like, you know, there's a kind of, uh, um, like so, okay. We're here, beautiful Balivan. It's amazing, really, really good to be here, and uh, it's absolutely beautiful, lovely, and peaceful. Um, it's my hometown that I grew up in, and I think most people, when they think of their hometown and think about moving back to their hometown, there's a lot of like trepidation about that. Like, there's kind of a lot of nerves and a lot of kind of like, oh my god, like, like am I regressing or something, or or is this like kind of um, is this going to be really bad, <laughs> and am I going to get stuck back where I grew up and stuff? Um, and uh, there's always a kind of a nerves about that. And I think that kind of comes out in a lot of the music where there's a kind of a bit of like a bit of kind of anxiety about kind of coming back and kind of half knowing that it's the right decision and half thinking that it's like, oh, this is going to be really kind of tricky. And and uh, is this the right thing to do kind of thing? Um, and that was kind of washing through my head while I was making the record and stuff. And, you know, you can take that as a positive and a, and a negative, you know, positive, you know, I'm kind of like creating music in this area. 90% of the samples were recorded in around here. The album's recorded in uh, the place that I'm working now. Um, and, you know, it kind of, so so that's almost like a kind of a affirmation of like, okay, I should be here. I'm here now. And then there's another kind of, you know, there's certain parts of that record where it's very, very dark. Like there's a track called Joined that's like probably the, the, like darkest track I've ever written and it's kind of like you know um, like kind of this kind of deep kind of like holy god this is like a, a big life decision kind of thing um, so yeah so there's there's that side of the I'm here now thing so I think I think I think people are probably right like there is a lot of 
I, I like the idea that somebody can listen to this record, look at the title and go, OK, I get where that came from and I get why that is. Um, and then there's a third level of that then as well, which is basically like, um, you know, after we came out of the pandemic, like life is just it feels like it's just cranked, like it's just so fast and everything's moving so quickly. And I'm doing 20 things at the same time. I've never seen you so busy ever. <laughs> like no, truthfully, like, like where like I'd like to think that we're good friends. And it's like I said, to him, like, like we're, we're down here for a few days. And I said to him in the car on the way down, I was like, I was like, I was like, this is lovely. We got to hang out together. Because like, it's just like, like life gets like, like life as you get older becomes it becomes yeah. difficult to kind of whatever. But seriously, like I've never seen you so busy. Yeah, absolutely. And like, so the, even like, if you look at the album cover, the album cover is like, it's, uh, it's like the, the mountain in the burn, but the, the wall underneath is in movement because I took it out of a speeding car. So you're like, you're actually in motion Didn't even stop. from the first thing. <laughs> it's like in motion. And like, I'm having this kind of uh, thing that I'm having to try and do a lot, which is trying to center myself in a moment and not keep looking forward and doing other things or not keep, you know, kind of worrying or about the next thing so I'm kind of like trying to center myself how successful would you say you're being with that right now and be, and be honest <laughs> I'm like not going good but like <laughs> I'm trying to get better at it and like I'm doing different bits and pieces like I've gotten into kind of doing meditation and stuff so I can actually sit still for fucking five minutes and like all of that stuff and like you know I mean again I think that's a super common problem for people in in your 30s you know you're kind of everything is happening so quickly and and just getting a second to kind of take stock is like really difficult further time from you a cat's here now uh, another review referred to you as a master of his craft now you're too humble you're too nice. humble to, uh, to that's good to take that on board but <laughs> uh, I feel like you know it'll be a classic dahi deflection but like is it like like does that matter like does it matter when a reviewer says something like that like do, like how much does it mean to you I mean it's always nice when you kind of get uh, uh, a compliment like that like absolutely um, you want people to like the music I think anybody who <laughs> who goes like you know, oh, well, I don't really care if people like it or not. I think that's like, I don't know. I, I don't know why you would bother releasing the music if if you thought that. It's kind of, you know, you obviously, you you can you can enjoy that somebody likes a record and you can see what they say or whatever. And sometimes, sometimes you can take stuff into account if you agree with it. But at the same time, you know, uh, the number one rule is that you should never, ever, ever take like, um, take that advice and just go and uh, just do it unquestioningly. You know what I mean? Like you can, t I mean, that's, I, I think that's the best critics will always kind of um, say what they think, but not like, you know, just throw everything out and just kind of, and you shouldn't be bowing to what everybody thinks or says. And, and you'd be going back to the, the Sony Music Ireland days. Well, on the flip side, did you know? anything ever rock you? Like, did any critical notice ever kind of make you kind of feel, oh, fuck, man? I mean, like, like it's kind of the rough and the smooth type thing. No, not really. Um, no, I, I, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm very good at letting stuff like that go. To be honest, um, 
Uh, and I, I think I get that from the gigs, actually. Like, I did a long, long time of playing gigs where there'd be like five or six people at a gig. And if you if you let that affect you, you're like, it'd be, it'd be so bad and you'd be so like wrecked for like three or four days. So I'm very, very good at like taking something in and then just releasing that and letting it go and just kind of going, okay, we'll move on to the next thing. It's fine. Um, and you, I think you do learn that from just playing loads of gigs, like, because it's the same, it's the same emotion. It's like, oh, nobody wants to come see me play. Why am I doing this? What's the reason thing? It's the same thing as a critic, like absolutely bodying you, <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, well, well you know. You just got to move on and like take it in your stride kind of thing, you know, so. How have you found though, like in terms of a fan base that would have been there 10 years ago who mm. still come to late night shows that you play and I, you know, yeah. I've been there and like, you know, I think you do recognize that maybe like, you know, this song needs to go hard now mm-hmm. to keep this crowd entertained. That's what they paid their money for. While also as a songwriter maturing into an aspect where it is that more contemplative, it is that more cinematic, it is that more kind of like... I wouldn't say that I'm here now doesn't have bangers or belters because mm-hmm. it does. But yeah. they're not three minutes. They're not, you know, here's a soaring vocal, here's like the classic yeah. whatever. So I mean like is that in your mind? Because again, I you don't I don't think you you don't strike me as someone who like wants to necessarily shortchange the audience. Yeah. You want to appreciate who does show up and people will obviously like whenever you play a festival, yeah, late night slot and body and soul or whatever. It's fucking rammed, mm-hmm. and you got to play Mary Keynes. Oh, one hundred percent. So, how do you balance all this out, as you know, with the music that you're writing now? Honestly, I, I, uh, I would very much say that I'm very much uh, uh, at what's the word, like kind of. Um, I would. I'm totally answerable to the to the audience, uh, pretty much at all times. So, like, even with this record, there's like quiet, like kind of calmer pieces of this this record that just won't be played live and I'll take the stuff that's like really heavy like powerful dance music stuff because I know that's going to work with the crowd who wants to see me um and uh and like that that is just like I, I don't know I the last thing I want to do is kind of go well I want to play this song because I want to play this song like <laughs> I'm playing to an audience and I am answerable to an audience and I think that's a really sacred thing like I've been absolutely blessed that like I get amazing audiences in all sorts of places and uh, I'm totally answerable to them. Like I, I, I perform sp- sp- like specifically for them. Like I was talking to um, Alex, my drummer today, because we were setting up for a gig in, in France on Friday um, and we talked for a good like 15, 20 minutes on how to kind of make sure that like certain tracks um, we're going to remix them so that they're more dancing for the for the live audiences because again completely answerable to them so it do, it isn't actually that difficult at all it's just kind of you just kind of go well this one will work well live this one will work well live and when, you know we've like an hour and a half um, of a show uh, on Friday and I think there's like half of the songs are are from the record and we've just kind of budged them up a bit and remixed them and kind of re-explored them to make them more palatable for the audience that's going to see me play so yeah who are you mostly listening to when you're making this record and also who do you listen to in your downtime or even like you know i think you'd be good for this you've recommended me some stuff before but like Mm. getting through the day music work music like (laughs) what do you go to um i listen to a lot of my boy Niels fram of course always i've been listening to a lot of kind of calmer music actually um probably for the same reason as we're saying that like life is moving so fast Let's and try stuff, and slow but, down yeah, yeah. So, so like slower music I made like a cam playlist recently on on Spotify and there's a brilliant pianist called Hani Arani who's like one of the first tracks on that um, she's incredible so yeah I listen to a lot of that kind of ambient slower stuff um, and then I think that actually 
uh, does influence a lot of my music, even though the, my music would be a lot more kind of energetic and stuff. But mixing ambient elements is a thing I'm really into at the moment. Um, so I listen to a lot of that. I listen to a lot of different score stuff at the moment as well, because I do a lot of score work. So I try and get a good idea of kind of um, different scores and trying to pay attention to that more. Um, and What's uh, your favourite score? For a movie. My favorite score. Um, my favorite score currently. Uh, there's a film called Manos, which has, for my money, one of the best scores. It's so so good. It's these amazing flute sounds and everything like that. That's that Mika Levi, is it? That's correct. Yeah, yeah Mika Levi. Um, and it has like these amazing, just random sounds in different parts, and it, it just creates so much atmosphere in that film, um, uh, which is kind of what you would want to do, and it, and it adds a palette to the to the to the, f- the film which I really really love so that you kind of you know you can look at a screenshot and immediately the music comes into your head or you can look at like a singular image or something like that you've um, seen Drive My Car haven't you? I have yeah great yeah, score yeah. great score Iko Ishibashi I believe that's right yeah. fabulous score yeah um, there is a brilliant score uh, for Perfect Blue you ever seen the film? Perfect yeah you Blue. recommend me that one that's a this is an anime film from a long time ago yeah. that's uh, somewhat problematic don't watch it with your parents or maybe you're not your partner maybe nobody <laughs> yeah watch it on your own I mean, it's like, a really grim graphic anime but film. I think it I think it has kind of, like it's it's for a reason like I mean yeah it's I, like a horror like, it's yeah. Satoshi Kon I think it's Satoshi Kon yeah great uh, that was an excellent film and yeah I, I can't remember the score that well though. the score is incredible it's really really amazing um, definitely worth a listen uh, but yeah you're moving into score work as well like you've been scoring short films you've, you've scored your first feature film that's right yeah Lakelands yeah Lakelands is coming out uh, you've scored like yeah short films and a, and, and a feature one and of course Houseplants is also a thing mm-hmm. in the background of recent album I mean we've, we, we've had you and Paul Newton talk about it on the show before but I guess I should ask in passing at this stage of the Houseplants journey what has it given you? Um, the Houseplants thing has been amazing because it was it was this year we did like the brunt of the gigging. So we did so much um, festivals and stuff this year. Um, the Houseplants thing is is a very different thing to the Dahi show um, in both kind of the feelings that you get when you play it and the feelings when you're kind of outside and around the, the gig and everything as well. Houseplants is so kind of like positive and uplifting and the audience are a completely different audience as well. Like there's a lot of Dahi fans and a lot of Paul Noonan fans who kind of come to it, but like they almost act completely different and it, and it feels like a totally different show and you're up there with a full band who are doing this thing so it's a much more kind of communal experience and that kind of seeps through in the music I think as well um, so it was a really lovely positive way to kind of get back to gigging after after the lockdown is what I would say is the, the best thing about it getting back into the idea of being social with people and hanging out with people and and uh, not taking that for granted after after the two years or whatever, um, so that was a, like a massive deal. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, Paul is Paul is great. Like he's kind of a very um, influential person in my life and very inspiring. Like I would I would hope that I am like him when when I get older as well. Still at still at the music and uh, still at the music and, and doing it so kind of gracefully and authentically as well. So nice little um, nice yeah. little nice little age dig there at El- <laughs> elder statesman Paul Noonan. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely older than me. He is older than you. But he's That's a, part of the thing. He's a handsome devil. A silver fox, if you will. Exactly. Um, given that this record, I'm Here Now, is about family and background and all that kind of stuff, yeah. uh, any feedback from, from, from the immediate family or the, the wider the wider Dahi people? Uh, yeah, I got a few texts and everybody seems very, very happy with it, which is, which is really great. Um, yeah, it's been really, really nice to kind of get kind of texts from people like we have... 
with this amazing uh, gardener, Nula. Shout out to Nula, who's doing like the polytunnel in the beekeepers, who's been kind of growing vegetables for us in the in the polytunnel. And she sent me a text message the day after, kind of saying how much she loves the record and and that she heard it on the radio and stuff. And yeah, you get a lot of kind of people in the in the area kind of saying congratulations and stuff, which has been uh, really really nice. Um, uh, yeah, because again, like you know, when you move away from somewhere like this, you kind of you lose whatever the 20 years that you're gone. And then when you come back, I mean, you're basically a blow in for a little while. You obviously have a family history and a bit of respect comes from that. But uh, yeah, one of the things that you really have to learn about being in a kind of a small community like this is that like the number one thing you have to do is give back to the community as best as you possibly can. Um, and that's going to be my my focus as we go forward as well. So, is there any uh, any, yeah. any any guilt there for popping off to Dublin and becoming a cool city, city boy for a while? <laughs> no, no guilt. No, no, no. I'd say probably uh, my accent is probably getting stronger as I come out here. I'd say, and my accent changes slightly and stuff like that. I get more, a bit more country, I think. Um, and there's just a lot to learn. There's just a lot to kind of you know when you're moving to a place like this, you kind of you know you have to. You have to go with it a lot and kind of learn the the ins and outs of the place, and that's been really fun. Yeah, you kind of nodded out there. I guess in closing, I'll ask you: uh, given the kind of elastic band nature of coming out of the pandemic, and now when you have, you know, you got to take time to actually physically meditate and all that kind mm. of stuff. Like the amount of projects you have going at any one time in this year, what does twenty twenty four look like? You look like for you rather in an ideal world. Um, and also, world. what do you have cooking? What do I have cooking? <laughs> um, well, I mean, like, so we're just about to start now from from the next couple of weeks to do like this massive Dahi tour. But I would be hoping to do a lot more Dahi gigs next year. I have, uh, I think, I have unfinished business in Vietnam, possibly. Oh wow! Uh, Come back to that episode, yeah, everybody. Well, let's let's hope. Uh, and no uh, encore. Dahi goes to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, part two. Um, and I'm going to try and go abroad a bit more. But yeah, it'll be very much like a kind of a Dahi based year. I think we're going to be doing touring a lot and doing a lot of different gigs and then um, uh, uh, yeah and then in Balivan you know I just kind of Beekeepers is is still a going concern and I'm trying to kind of make that place it's like a it's an old house that you have to look after and really really like treat with respect so there's a lot of doing a lot of that and stuff as well but uh Hopefully I'll slow down a bit. That would be great if I can just chill a little bit and, and take stock a little bit more. That would be great. It would be amazing if you just like disappeared for like two months. <laughs> and I'd be, I, I don't even think I'd be worried. I'd be like, yeah, yeah it's great. It'd be like the end of Goodwill Hunting where Ben Affleck is like, you know, I want to just go to, go to your house, knock on your door, you're not there one day. You know, because I know he's gone off, you know, to, to, to just be himself. Be himself, yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, he's here now. <laughs> For now, <laughs> yes. I'm here now. Is the record uh, Dahi.me is where you'll get everything That's Dahi right. based. Uh, the album isn't on vinyl yet. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. But for now, if you want to support the artist, you can get it on Bandcamp and, of course, go stream it. Go tell everybody to go listen to it. Um, I guess in closing, if you had to save one Dahi track from a burning building, from a burning building, yeah, a burning um, digital building, <laughs> the Spotify <laughs> fault goes up. <laughs> Uh, not necessarily even on this one, but like, like, is there any one track that you kind of... Because again, like you mentioned earlier about the idea of, you know, moving on to different projects and trying to stay in the moment, etc. But like, I think that you have gotten quote unquote better at, at being like, this is done. Thank you. Yeah. And now I'll move on. Yeah. But like stopping and taking stock for a second, I mean, like, is there any one track that defines even the last 10 years for you? Oh, wow. I mean, you'd have to say Mary Keynes because people would be angry if you didn't. Uh, <laughs> apart um, from Mary Keynes. Apart from Mary Keynes. <laughs> Um, apart from Mary Keynes, I mean, there, there, there's a couple of tracks on this record that like, there's a there's a kind of a thing. I think I think David Bowie said that like, you know, you know when a track is done when you can't see any of yourself in it anymore. Like you can't recognize how you 
basically made the track. Um, and there's a couple of different ones, like Polly Polly and Keep It For The Next One on this record. Um, maybe like Orange and Nobody Knew Around You in the in Loss. Um, all of those ones have this kind of thing where I was just like, how did I make this? I have no idea. Like, And can't even just deconstruct it when I open it up and stuff as well. So um, yeah, so I'd definitely, th- those, are the, those are the top couple, I'd say. Yeah. I asked him for one, guys. He picked five. <laughs> five. But that's yeah, how busy the guy is. To them all. Ladies and gentlemen, live from Valley Vaughan, it's Dahio Thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Welcome back on the show anytime, of course. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Yes, once more, congratulations to Dahlia on the release of I'm Here Now. Uh, he's on tour, by the way. There's a fucking ton of dates up, so go check them out. Dahi is, of course, on all his socials, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Dahi.me, as noted, will be the place to get all that information from. Do go see him. Support the boy. He works his ass off. He deserves it. Um, and also, I'm looking forward to hearing what house plans get up to before the year is out, hopefully. Hopefully more of them, because they, they're a fun, fun experience. Right, um, speaking of fun experiences, Mark, mm-hmm. it's top five action movie scores. You are correct, we have done horror in the past. We have done um, fucking opening, you know, credit music from a film, end credit music from a film. Mm-hmm. Action, though, interesting one. Um, you, I think you made a point at the top of the show that's quite interesting. You think it's a bit undersung in terms of the level of respect that it might deserve. Yeah, I mean, like, I think action, like, you go back to, like, kind of golden age filmmaking, like, they, they talk about like, what they call, like, um, invisible filmmaking, where it doesn't draw its, t- a lot of attention to itself. And a lot of action scores are there to just be there alongside the action itself. And it's just kind of, for, it's very much followed trends. So a lot of times it's not very noticed, I think, as well as other ones, because, like, Action, often action movies it's like there's the action scene there's music playing behind it but you're so concentrated on the image you don't notice the score maybe that's why they're... I was actually looking up searching for this like a list or something it's just, I'd already picked my list up but I was curious I couldn't find like a like, list of like the best action movie music lists like it's kind of it was interesting that I couldn't find that because as easy if you went to like top 10 you know in general or more specific I think you could find a lot of great but like there isn't that much kind of because I think maybe it's just not as noticed because it's kind of invisible more so than like other scores or especially for like big Oscar winning prestige dramas which is like yeah and horror as well of course which yeah. lends itself to it uh, you kind of have to kind of find them in the mix in terms of my own research for this one yeah I looked up a bunch of lists and you're right there is a Darth there, mm. there is actually surprising like lack of specialization in it really so um, I kind of as usual went with the ones that kind of came to mind mm. uh, it's the it's, once again to repeat myself again even further it's the kind of list where you could absolutely do fucking five times the version yeah, of this 
I can promise you right now, listener, there's going to be stuff on here where you're like, how did you not pick this? What yeah. on earth? Um, I went with what I went with, okay? Back off. I'm the same. Uh, or a roundhouse kick you, <laughs> like hard targets. Chance Boudreau. Uh, did you focus entirely on score as opposed to soundtracks? Yes. Two score. different things. I stuck, yeah, I score. I was yeah. stuck to score. So this is music written for the film. Yeah. Composed, arranged, recorded, as opposed to just cool needle drops, because again, that is that is a separate list for me. Oh, I mean, ball, yeah. you think about like The Matrix, for example, which does have a score, of course, but also has like sick needle drop after sick needle drop. So I stayed away from that realm. I went with original music made for the movie. And uh, you are our guest though, Mark, so I would like you to kick us off. We have both focused on the best or our favourites. It's all positive. So if you could possibly please intro, and of course do not tell me because I do not know. Yes. So I want like a nice mysterious intro here and then let, let, we'll let the music do the talking. I'm actually before, I'm actually curious if you'll be able to guess all of them but because I don't know if I'd be able to. But uh, yeah, so for the first one I, I was like I really want to give, I really want to make sure to pick at least one 90s film and one big 90s film um, and one that I thought the music was great for. So it's a bit of a, I guess in these, maybe it's for a while it was considered a cult classic, but I think these days it's probably considered part of the canon of the, the if you will, the action movie canon. I must confess, Mark, I'm not entirely sure what this is. Mm. Uh, It's the opening scene to an early 90s classic. Didn't do incredibly well. Did well enough. Uh, The film was Point Break. Oh, for fuck's sake. I didn't expect to pick this, I will be honest. But I was looking to like 90s stuff. And I remembered the opening scene to Point Break, which is what Sad is from. Um, of course, if you, for people who don't know, uh, it is uh, from the early 90s, uh, kind of the breakout film for Catherine Bigelow, let's say, um, stars... Uh, um, never more sexy, Patrick Swayze. Never more sexy. Two, never more, se- maybe, never more sexy, Ken Reeves mm. as well. He's in there. Ken yeah. Reeves plays John... Has the greatest plot description. <laughs> I mean, like... Ever. Like, I'm, Boil I, this down. So, John, <laughs> Ken Reeves plays Johnny Utah, a former... <laughs> A high school slash maybe college quarterback, high school quarterback star who is an undercover police officer who has to infiltrate a gang of skydiving, surfing bank robbers who use the funds of the bank robbing to fund their lifestyle dedicated to extreme sports and <laughs> adrenaline-fueled lifestyle. That's basically... This the is the plot. best one of all that time. The, I mean, there's, That's there's, the genuine plot. There's an argument for that. Like, and it takes itself seriously. It takes itself seriously, which may be why it's so great. Uh, I think it's Catherine Bigelow's best film still, maybe. Ooh, controversial. Um, probably, I do love The Hurt Locker a lot. Mm. I think it, I think it is great, but... I mean, it's no K-19 The Widowmaker, no, is it? No, no, <laughs> no it's not. Uh, but one thing, because oh, we watching it recently, I was like, oh, why doesn't she make straightforward action films anymore? Because, like, it... She has made. She obviously does a lot of action in her, in her new movies. I mean, you could argue Hurt Locker is more of an action movie than a war film, but like, it's just not. She's weird that she hasn't made like a straight up action genre piece. For, for, yeah, because she's so good at like. I think of the scene not, before against the music. I think of the scene like with the lawnmower and like that's that's like a Chekhov's going to start and like it's just the the raid at the house. So good, so good. Which um, features a member of Red Hot Chili Peppers, does, of course. Does, which was a does. quiz question in the No Encore Quiz. Mm, Go back a few episodes. How'd you do on the quiz? Uh, I think I did it better as well. Oh, no, I did better than I would have won. No, I'm saying I, I would have won. I would have won. <laughs> won. I 
would have won if it was just me sitting at home um, listening to the podcast. But in the hot seat, it's a different story. That's fair. It's, it is a different story. Uh, also, it's a great. I mean, it's a movie is about has like Patrick Swayze as the adrenaline junkie and kind of hippie guy, and then and you have as Bodie, and then you have obviously Reeves as John Utah. But and yes, Laurie Petty is gorgeous in it. She looks great in it. And yes, they have a good romance, but it's really the greatest movie romance of all time. That's the love story at the height of it. It's the most homoerotic. Yeah. Uh, there's a part in the film where Patrick Swayze literally says to Keanu Reeves, I know you want me so bad, it's like acid in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> Oh, I love it. It's an outstanding yeah. what's, what's film. What's he say to the guy about bleeding out? Oh, that's the best. So, yeah, spoilers <laughs> for Point Break. For 1991, by yeah. the way. So, you know. Also, yeah, fuck me. This episode's going to be four hours long. Because we're, <laughs> we're just going to devolve into gushing about action movies. But, like, fuck it. It's fine. On holidays. Um, so, there's a part where, uh, spoiler, someone, someone has been shot and is bleeding out. And, you know, it's all gone wrong. But Keanu Reeves at this point... It's all gone wrong. But Keanu Reeves goes, the guy's like, oh, I'm cold, I'm cold. And Keanu Reeves goes, you're cold because all the blood is rushing out of your body, Roach. You're going to die. I hope it was worth it. It really is devastating. It's though. brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. Like, Absolutely brutal. Just like, to tell someone, like, you're, the reason you're cold is the blood is losing your leaving And you're your going to die. Yeah. I hope it was worth it. And that guy does die. Yeah. Uh, spoilers for yeah. the film. But to talk about the music anyway. Uh, so that is the opening scene. It is an incredible opening scene. The lovely kind of... Uh, the one thing I'm very bad at talking about music is like the note and everything. But the, the kind you don't of, need like, to get technical. Single tone. I'm very bad at that. Single tone at the start and then... It, it, Builds that lovely crescendo, and it's like it starts, it's the whole movie microcosm. It's like there's waves playing over that, and then suddenly it's like Keanu Reeves introduced to Johnny Utah. Yeah, I can say it seriously, Johnny Utah in torrential monsoon downpour <laughs> rain, doing his like shotgun <laughs> police training, and like in that rain for some reason, and like it's a whole movie. It's like surfing and like ludicrous shots of, and that music plays, and it's it's a it's a really nice actually. If you're looking for people, are, like I always say, mindful, mindfulness is what you make of it. You, you find your own kind of mindfulness. It doesn't have to be like somebody saying like water in your ear. It can be watching that opening scene of. Point break for the music and, and the images together. Um, it, can but Mark be, Isham, it, it can be if you stay prayed up. Yeah, sorry. Who is yeah. uh, who, who yeah. is the music he's, here? Uh, he's around for a long time. Mark he's Isham. So, he's something of a composer for hire. Uh, he doesn't have the cachet of John Williams, obviously. Um, who does? He was nominated once for A River Runs Through It. He's worked on. He's always working. He's worked on loads of movies, but I'd never heard of him before this. Uh, like. Cinephiles don't even know him, let alone your average film goer. But uh, like last year, he worked on. I, I looked it up. He was looking on the film Blacklight. Is that the, with the Liam Neeson and the unbearable weight of massive talent? Uh, uh, I've seen out. both those movies. The, the Liam the Blacklight <laughs> film is like at this stage, I'm convinced Liam Neeson is in yeah. fact AI. Yeah, <laughs> and they just fucking program him yeah. into films. It's yeah. outrageous. Um, and yeah, so like, so like, he doesn't have any kind of specific genre at all. Like, no, 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 loads of composers don't, but a lot of them do. And he just. Says, He's a composer for hire, but the, and like he does the, the work you hear here, I, I love, and the work during the skydiving scene, which I think is a crucial scene because like, Bode, you get a sense Bode and Utah know each other's secrets, kind of. They know each other mm-hmm. is posing. Wants so, so bad, it's like acid yeah, in his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like incredible skydiving scene. The, the one that's like not dangerous, but like, well, the one that's like the later one on, but like, it seems like it's done for real. I'm pretty it sure. It looks incredible. It looks incredible, and the music is gorgeous. It's like these lovely little synth stabs that like, and it also builds this lovely crescendo. And it's like, again, it's just. It's, it washes over you as well, and, and like the music at the start as well. It's it's the atmosphere. It's the '90s bombast, 
uh, I was surprised put that, I, I was surprised that it ended up on my list but actually I'd love to listen to it again there's like a no, 30 minute it's a 30 minute suite on, on YouTube it's very hard to find it was never I don't think it was ever released or it was released and taken back off the market because it's very hard to find but yeah it's lovely Point Break is legitimately one of the best action films of all time and mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it listener I implore you but don't watch be careful now there is a terrible remake from 2015 I believe yeah I've never seen it directed by a guy called Erickson Core, <laughs> and it's really bad mm. it stars someone uh, almost, almost died when they tried to make it as well didn't they there was, a, possibly, there was some accident yeah, there might have been some stun stuff happening um, Luke Bracey who yeah me neither uh, plays the Keanu Reeves character and the great Edgar Ramirez the sexy Edgar Ramirez is Bodie but you can't like you can't out do Swayze but I swear to god right Ray Winstone's in it um, I swear to god right there is a line in this film <laughs> uh, where Bodie is after being introduced and he's trying to like you know they're, they're on like a cruise ship or something it's so stupid and he's like charming the Johnny Utah character and he literally says to him if a tree falls in the forest and nobody puts it on YouTube, did it really happen? Oh, God. I'm like, sorry? <laughs> it's modern. It's modern, guys. It's modern. Right. Um, great choice yeah. to kick this off. And for my number five, very happy with this one. We're staying in the 90s. And it. this to me is quintessential hype, momentum, propulsion music. And I can see the scene in my head every time. But it's this is this is what a 90s action film should sound like. What do you think it is? That's like, is it Tony Scott? No, that's a very good guess though. Yeah. 1995, the debut film from a director who would basically have his own name coined as a genre eventually. What do you guess? What do you guess? No. It's Michael Bay. Oh, is it? No, it's not. The, it's not the Rock. Is it's it? Bad Boys. Bad Boys. It's Bad Boys. Yeah. And the composer. This track is called Foot Chase, and the yeah, composer is a guy called Mark Mancina. American film composer, a veteran of Hans Zimmer's media ventures, so his stable. Uh, he scored over 60 films, including Speed, which I thought about for this, mm. but Bad Boys won out. He's done like Training Day, Twister, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and he wasn't actually involved in Bad Boys 2 or Bad Boys for Life. This surprisingly good Bad Boys for Life, but they did use this, This uh, the original theme for Bad Boys is used throughout it. Um, I love this. Um, I, I love. I, I think Bad Boys is is unabashed, really good '90s fun. And when this plays, like, there's a big chase sequence, as you might imagine, mm. and it, ha- it leads to that fucking iconic, genuinely iconic bit where, after the villains have escaped and they've kidnapped Taya Leone's character, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith pick them. Like, like I think Will Smith like runs out in the street and he just narrowly stops Martin Lawrence getting like run down. So they crash to the ground and like while this is all playing and everyone's just smashing into things, it's unbelievable. And like the lads like pick each other up and as they stand up, the camera does the 360 thing as they're rising in slow-mo. Outrageous stuff. <laughs> they recreate that shot in Bad Boys 2 yeah. 
And it's like, again, in Bad, if you haven't seen Bad Boys 2, it's one of the most uh, repugnant. Mean-spirited films. Oh, it's so mean-spirited. It's like fun action. <laughs> yeah, it's gross. Like, like it's, it's, Isn't it's, there a bit when they drive a homeworld like a favela or something like that? And it's like, <laughs> that's, like, that's towards the end. A hundred people's homes destroyed. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. There's a bit where there's a, they're chasing a van and people are throwing corpses from the van at them. All, like, loads of gay panic jokes. Like, yeah. like all, like, it's extremely, it starts at a clan rally. Like, it's, it's outrageous. <laughs> uh, knowingly so, but still, like, it's like, okay, Michael, we get it. But like, there's a moment, and again, all of this carnage has happened in the movie for like two hours. So much death, so much destruction. It's insane. And they kidnap again. You know, like pattern emerging here. Woman mm. gets kidnapped. Um, the Gabrielle Union character, who's mm. Martin Lawrence's sister, gets kidnapped. And like Martin, like Martin Lawrence, like finds this out and like gets off the phone. And the camera's doing the three sixty thing. And he goes, "Shit, just got real." <laughs> I'm like, "Really? <laughs> no, not real." Okay. Yeah. What's been going on for the last two hours? It should be noted that both Bad Boys and uh, Bad Boys Two in particular and Point Break are parodied quite excellently in Hot Fuzz. Which is yeah. a fun film. Um, yeah. I love this. I love this music. I love it, it. Is it is perfect in terms of what it is? I just I can see the VHS cover of this. Yeah. Uh, Mark Mancina had, did an interview in 1998, and he talked about how he was kind of a gun for hire. He said like when Speed came along, and uh, because the it was put to him that his first major score was Speed, and he's like, oh, it actually done stuff before that though. Um, but Speed was just one in a line of work. It was so popular, I started getting recognition from it. But if you look at my career from then. People say Speed, Bad Boys and Twister, but I did like Disney comedies and stuff and I did Mall Flanders of all things. Um, but he said that like the, 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 the score soundtrack to this was never released for some reason and he was told that they were going to and never happened. He said, I get more letters for this score to be released than any other score. He said, I've heard Bad Boys in so many movies with just slight changes. It did kind of set the tone. I mean, like we talked about The Rock recently on the show and Top 5 opening credits and that kind of incredible um, militaristic you know boom 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 and like like it goes as far as like you know the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff that mm. kind of boom boom ba da boom 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 all the Hans Zimmery kind of stuff and it's no surprise to learn that Mark Mancina was of course a student of the master mm. but uh, I fucking love this I listened to it about four times on the way to the studio as I walked fast <laughs> over here and I would highly recommend going back and uh, checking out Bad Boys it holds up for the most part I think um, I think it needs more Euro villain the mm. Chechi Cario character mm. isn't enough for me but it's good the sequel is again approached with caution but Bad Boys for Life was genuinely shockingly I still good need to watch that third one can, yeah. can we watch a Will Smith film anymore though that's no. the question he slapped somebody I don't know he slapped do somebody alright <laughs> yeah. uh, how do I separate that no. Um, no this is great I think that thing you said about uh, the quote you have there him saying like um, you hear it everywhere now and like it, it is true like we, we that sounds like a 90s sound but like it was kind of especially this and speed you mentioned like it was kind of it, there was a kind of shift there because there's a clear like the 80s kind of action sound but this is like the 90s sound, and it's fed into like early noughties and this really was a progenitor of that like this kind of stuff and it really it's it's a sound we take for granted maybe we all think I think we do that's what we're talking about today the start of the shift action score is taken for granted they're not because of they they're so quote unquote serviceable and that's not an insult because they, they do a function very often and here's a great example of it and it's a, it's just like yeah you're saying it reminds you of it reminds, I used to, back in we have a house Growing up in a house in Ballyhoyke in Kerry, and there's a, there's a cost cutters, and there we, there was no like extra vision, but there's a cost cutters. At the end of cost cutters, there's like a there's like a, a shelf uh, with like and about like forty or fifty VHSs, and I remember like and like all the movies for me sound like that when you just played like like because it was like all it was like early naughty, so it was all stuff from like it was like it'd be like Godzilla ninety eight, it'd be like Enemy of the State, it would be like Bad Boys one. 
Roberts. Enemy the State, man. Speed. Oh. Enemy the State sounds like this. And that was a couple years after. Yeah. It has a similar sound to this. Oh, yeah. It has a real, like, you know, boom, 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 boom. Like, like techno thriller. Chasing sound like that. But, you just yeah. but like, it was that predates it as well. So it's, All right. Number four for you, Mark. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, my number four is a movie I think you were, I'm not going to give it away too much. You were handing me to watch for a while. And I kind of thought maybe I will like it. It's a bit of a return to form. Well, depending on who you ask, it got mixed reception. But I think you'll agree it was somewhat of a return to form for the director who, for, depending on you, at least in terms of the genre he made his name in. So I'm going to give you a hint. See if you get it. I think you might get this one. So that was um, the uh, Rath- Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man score. Uh, well, the score, the film is uh, Guy Ritchie. The music is by the film is by Ritchie. The music is by a guy called Christopher Benstead. Benstead, and the film itself is a remake of the 2004 film La Convoyeur. <laughs> if I'm saying that right, <laughs> uh, Dave, you told me to watch this for a long time, and I was always like, yeah, maybe I will. And like, I, it was a refreshing, back to basics kind of. Yeah, kind of simple, straightforward action movie, um, but with kind of elevated by its kind of weird plot construction. Um, it's basically, it's a Jason Statham vehicle. And Literally. Like, hmm? Literally. It was yeah, almost called... Sorry, did you see the, the, there was like an alternative title yeah, for this movie? I forget what it, it is. Cash Truck. Cash Truck, yeah. Like, which, which I think it's this title. Wrath of Man is a better title. It was called Cash Truck. It, it would have been dumped on Amazon. And it, like, but it's good that they called it Wrath This of was Man. dumped on Amazon. It was, but it was in cinemas, right? No. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. No. That's well, not here. It didn't no. get a fucking cinema, yeah. which, which anyway. I'm furious about. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. I would have seen it in cinema. Um, so he plays Patrick H. Uh, Hill? Hey, Patrick Hill. Hill, yeah. Hill, they yeah. just call him H. Um, Every, sorry, the characters in this movie, they're all called like stuff like Bullet. Yeah. Or, or I think, or his, I think his alter ego called Hargreaves. And then there's Josh Hartnett plays a character called yeah. Boy Sweat uh, Dave. And uh, <laughs> he's a res- kind of reserved, standoffish uh, guy. He's working at an armed security company. They, 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 they transport uh, uh, large sums of money via armored trucks and they're, they work in security. And he, it, right from the off, things aren't what they seem. There's kind of strange dynamics uh, between the, the the guys who work at the the lads who work at the uh, the company, um, we're not quite sure why, and we're not quite sure why Evan is distrustful, especially of Jason Statham's character, and why he seems so distrustful of everyone else. Um, but it's kind of eventually revealed through flashbacks and through exposition, obviously. That don't spoil too I'm much. Not here. Don't spoil too much, but there's reveal. We get to reveal why he's there and yeah, then yeah. why he gets the next. Um, Sorry, the reason is that is because I'm I'm just excited. I rewatched this recently. Yeah. If you again, listener, I, no, I wasn't going to spoil it. Though. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. Watch it because it, watch it without. Without knowing anything about it, I yeah. agree. It's on that's Amazon good. Prime. It's made by Guy Ritchie, but it's it's his least Guy Ritchie film, I would yeah. say. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's exactly, and it's it's it, you know it, it sounds like Guy Ritchie making another Jay Statham action. And you think oh, this is another snatch, another. And if you like those movies, that you know, some there's good stuff in those movies. But I, I think I would give this a chance if you're uh, averse to those films because it's like it, it is a much more kind of grounded 
gritty. It's not going to like, it's not like, you know, Mike Lee or any movie or anything. Like that, but it's <laughs> it's like, it's for what it is, it's, it, it, it takes itself seriously in the right way. And I think the music by this guy, Christopher Benstead, is really essential to that. It's fantastic. Because I think he, you know, Gertie has tried to make like a movie that's not his genre before. And I think this music really is what gives it the movie the gravitas it really needs. Yeah. Like what you heard there, I love his like combination of the industrial kind of sound and the orchestral sound. It also reminds me of, I don't know, there's a game I played, A Plague Tale Innocence, which is really good music as well. That kind of stuff, like really lush string work. Um, he's a long time collaborator, collaborator of Guy Ritchie's. He's only, uh, he's worked on his movies for like on the, from the sound side of things for a while, but not his only other score is The Gentleman. Um, he's mostly known for his mixing work. He, I think he was either one or he was, we worked on Gravity. Um, and yeah, so he, yeah, he worked on Gravity, he did like the mixing there, but he's only done two scores. I don't know if he's any up, but I really hope he makes more because I think he's, I think he's, he clearly will. I mean, he's like, he's so clearly, like, like there, these are recent films. Now, I, I thought The Gentleman was terrible, but I yeah. mean, like, and it's obviously a much tonally, much more different movie, but yeah, like, I mean, Mick Pope of the Galaxy fame, good friend of mine, good friend of the show. I think, did he, I think he might have seen this in my recommendations as well, but like, He's also just immediately like won over by the score. He was like the opening, like the opening credit, like the opening credits theme is definitely on my most played on Spotify for yeah. the year. Like I just can't stop listening to it. It just yeah. has this huge overarching power to it. Yeah. And again, yeah, just the way the film is shot, the way it looks, how seriously it takes itself, it is quite grim. But mm-hmm. like I, I rewatched it recently, and I was like, this is like one of the most solid three and a half out of five. Yeah. And I, and like, please know that three and a half out of five yeah. in this genre to me yeah. is like, yeah might as well be five stars yeah, like, yeah. Like, I'm like, I love it I think it, it's fucking brilliant it's a good I mean I, I, we've had this before it's an ITV2 movie yes good, can you sorry can you explain what an ITV2 movie is well like the, the most we need to say the most ITV2 it's like a, a, well you kind of described it there yourself is a three and a half star movie that you can just sit down and it's just it's just it's just like it's it also it's, it's two components to it it has to be not 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 too great that you have, like too there's too much going on that like you need to really pay attention to it 100%, but it has to be something that's good enough and enjoyable enough with the right cast and well-made enough that it's just watchable from start to finish. And also you can start it at any point. That's another point. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, if, yeah. If it's, yeah, because like if it's on ITV2, it'll, like, there'll be sets of ads and it'll, it'll start at half nine, you'll turn on your TV at quarter past ten and you can still watch to the end. You know, or you're flicking through the channels, you've missed the first half an hour. Like yeah. my, my dad was a fiend for this. He'd be flicking through the channels and like the Godfather would be on, but it'd be like, you know, the confessional sequence or something. And he'd be like, All right. And I'm like, You can't do this. You can't do that. Exactly. And like and like I'm like, that was, this is so disrespectful. Mm. But also even worse. He would do it with films he hadn't seen before, oh, and I'm like, "Dad, no, you can't. This is." And he's like, "What?" And I'm like, "No, this is an outrage. You can't do this." So yeah, man, fucking what? A, what a habit! Yeah. What a guy! Yeah. <laughs> and what a movie! Yeah, and yeah, and I, I think yeah, this this score. I just can't get enough of this score. It's so good. That is from it's great. Like, the song is called. It's a. This isn't a sport to say, but like, it's in. It's, it's a lungs, liver, heart, spleen, or something like that. Oh yeah, because the, the film takes itself so seriously. It has title cards, yeah, and that's yeah, one of yeah. them. <laughs> it's like, it takes stuff, and it is that kind of you know. And it, but it, this music, it, I, I don't think it, it, the whole movie wouldn't work without it. It's incredible. And yeah. It's I'm not one of the best action movie scores, one of the best scores in the last ten years. It's I really recommend it. Yeah. Just listen to it. Just that piece there. I you loved. know what I haven't actually done with this. And again, for anyone who you know for some reason, it's Wrath of Man. Christopher Benstead is the composer. Jason Statham movie. It's on Amazon Prime. Please go watch it. It's very fucking good. Mm. 
kind of ugly in places in terms of some of the narrative. Like, it's not a fun... Good Irish representation. Niamh Algar and... Niamh Algar's in it. And Holt there's McElhenney, who not Irish, but he, was, he stayed... At, you think he went to, he went to he school? He went to Trinity, here. or he went, he went to some boarding school. Um, the, and there is another the Irish actor in there, though. He's, like, one of the crew. Um, but, yeah, I think what I was going to say was, I haven't actually listened to the score in isolation, which I'm surprised by, which I must do. Yeah. I only did it for this, and I was surprised. I was, it's really good. Awesome. Um, hard act to follow again. Number four for me. Um, a lot to talk about on this one. And I, I just, I, I simply couldn't leave it out. And also, I've picked this composer about 17 different times uh, in, in many, many, many respects, both here on the show and on No Ox Chord. He has to be represented. And boy, will he be by the time that my number four is done. Yes, of course. It's Hans Zimmer, everybody. Mm. Although working here with uh, James Newton Howard on the score for Batman Begins back in Ooh. 2005. That's the Batman theme. It's called Molossus because every fucking track on that album was a reference of a bat species or something. Uh, Molossus, this is the Batman theme music that would persist over the course of the Nolan trilogy. I think it's tremendous. Uh, I obviously, I've said a million times, I do have issues with Christopher Nolan's movies. Um, I think Batman Begins is the best of the trilogy. Mm. I think it's fantastic. I think it has the single best moment in a Batman film ever, which is the very end of the film when Gordon says, I never said thank you. Mm. And Batman says, and you'll never have to. I get fucking chills every time. Mm. It's messy because Nolan films always are. But I do find Batman Begins to be one of the most brilliantly rewatchable of Mm. all of them. Mm. Um, I think Nolan, like Nolan makes films that generally despite their numerous flaws, in my opinion, are very watchable, very rewatchable mm. films. And I have grown to love some of them over the course of, you know, time. Interstellar being one of them, of course, which has, in my opinion, maybe Hans Zimmer's best ever score? Question mark. So the score for this movie, composed by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, I think they split the kind of tone. Hans Zimmer did the more action-based stuff and James Newton Howard did the more drama character stuff. And I think it mostly works. I think it's quite rich and regal. But I would like to point something out. I've pointed this out on Twitter before. I've probably said it on the podcast a couple of times as well, but I have an audio clip with me. I am now going to play you a clip from the motion picture Black Rain, starring Michael oh. Douglas from 1990, I believe, or 89. I should note, Hans Zimmer also did the score there for Black Rain, so he's cannibalizing himself. And to be fair, I think there might is there some is there some rule is there some legal thing? It does depend on who has the rights. I don't know. Are they both in the same film studio? I don't have a problem with this. Mm. Like Trent Reznor does it, yeah. you know. Like I mean, I, I think it's okay for a musician to self-reference. Although you gotta say, 
there's something kind of funny about the lead theme in the Nolan trilogy being something that Hans Zimmer just had lying around. Yeah. Did he just wake up late to the meeting and was like, oh, fuck. How about uh, this? Because it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. What I think is kind of interesting about it is like there was obviously a Hans Zimmer that was working for, as like, a use of gun for hire for a long time. Like he, like he was considered like being on a similar vein as some of these other guys are mentioning. And then I think he made Batman Begins and that became one of the film score sounds and he just he just became massively popular. Uh, of course, dude. the Inception. Boom. Yeah, yeah, and that that that, you just, that kind of um, I don't know if it's a Jacob. No, it's a, what's the ladder called? I don't know whatever. But like that kind of just that he uses that a little bit of Inception too, like mm. that kind of like that building thing as well. So then it's funny that he became like the Hans Zimmer like accomplished film composer after the night. It was the, but like well the, he certainly was beforehand I mean like to give him his credit he was known in the 80s he was big in the 90s oh, yeah. a lot of action stuff and yeah but he became definitely I know for sure he became like touring three yeah. arena musician Hans Zimmer in post Nolan stuff I think in particular kind yeah. of boosted him and you know he's massive now he has been accused of you know having of being kind of like a James Patterson type where it's like I'm here, but there's actually a team of writers beneath me, mm. like, you know, like literally like beneath the stage, there's like this factory of musicians mm. that he composers that he has, and he does have them. Yeah. He does have this kind of massive fucking, he's an industry onto himself, which is why I find it kind of funny when you hear something like what I'm about to play you next. So I was initially going to cut just like 30 seconds of this clip, but in fact, we're going to play the full thing. It's a little over two minutes. It's a trailer. This is a trailer for Hans Zimmer's masterclass that you can sign up to, and Picture the man in what appears to be some kind of giant opera house uh, that he's using as a studio. You know, he's obviously one of the richest people in the world in terms of his craft. But I find it really funny that he tries to get across the point here that, like, you don't need to be mega rich or whatever. Like, you know, you can just do it. But, like, so just picture this man in this grand scenario. And also, it's just really ridiculous. So this is a trailer for Hans Zimmer Masterclass. Take it away. In music, you're basically having a conversation. It's a question. It's an answer. Ooh, it's a bit of a dodgy question here. I am convinced that I have no idea how to do your movie. It's always a blank piece of paper. I can tell you everything you need to know in one word. Story. All we're doing, set designer, actor, writer, composer, we try to create worlds. Sherlock, it's a score anybody could do. One microphone on a laptop. Ideas are not limited by budget. The creative process takes place in your head. The interesting ideas come from some kid in a garage in the Bronx. You just need to break through the myth that you can't create a great Hollywood blockbuster on an iPad. Because if you're on story, you can do whatever you want to do. I like writing in D, and it's nice that if you go from... It's satisfying for Batman. Four French horns on the right, four French horns on the left, and they're up in a gallery, up way above the orchestra. Two notes, but the amount of expressiveness you can put into them.
This is a musician's life. Everybody tells you not to do it and get a real job. When all is said and done, and we've built the highest high-rises and we built the fastest machines, there's still going to be room for somebody to tell your story or somebody to write your piece of music. The seconds of your life are ticking away. If somebody tells you that there's a rule, break it. That's the only thing that moves things forward. I'm Hans Zimmer, and this is my masterclass. I mean, where to begin? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm just my, like my mind is blown by the by, by this because it's just like it's just so wildly contradictory. All you need is a microphone and a laptop. What All you, you need is a microphone, laptop to make. The music of a thirty-string, a thirty-member string orchestra. That's all you need. All you need is your the little Korg app on your phone that makes little beats. You'll be grand. You'll be there. You'll be at the Oscars in no time. It's That's unbelievable. All it takes. Like yeah, he's, he basically is being like, "What the fuck? Why, yeah. why aren't you doing What's it?" What's your excuse? <laughs> <laughs> also, who is telling Hans Zimmer yeah. it's beyond the year nineteen eighty-four or something? Hey, quit that, man! Would you get a real job? <laughs> yeah. People are always telling me to stop. <laughs> in my mansion, like, you go, this isn't really working out for you, is it? Hands is like, like, what are you talking about? It's absolutely cartoonish, but the man steams a good ham. He does. Or good hands, you could and say. And the score, Batman Begins, is great. It's a banger. All it's a belter. I love it a lot. I will, uh, yeah. I'll close by saying that there was, I believe, uh, one bit of criticism I saw. Uh, Christian Clemenson, the sole reviewer of FilmTracks.com, it says here, was less ready to praise the score, saying that Zimmer and Howard's decision not to use Danny Elfman's material was not due to the, quote, stinks of laziness uh, considers the theme used to represent Batman inadequate to represent the complex character of Bruce Wayne and his alter ego most of these complaints he lays on the shoulder of Zimmer saying you could ar- argue that Zimmer quote traded in his horde of lesser known ghost riders for one top notch ghost rider mm. there you go it's a tough world the composing world lots of uh, slings and arrows but good old hands always good for a laugh and good for a score what you got next uh, so my number three pick three, yeah, is, uh, three. is uh, a writer-director, probably one of the f- few writer-directors who also composes, um, kind of sets him apart from the field. Uh, maybe not the score that would come to mind first, people think of this person, but for me it's maybe his most influential um, and maybe his best. the theme for John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. Um, good movie, um, first uh, foremost. Um, it was probably, I would argue, his first Carpenter film, quote-unquote. Like, he had made Dark Star before, but it was a bit of a nightmare, a bit of a failure in his eyes. Um, he was given the task of making a, a B-movie, a genre picture, for $100,000. And he kind of decided to make a weird, very strange film, I would argue. It's kind of a set in a Wild West LA. It's inspired by 
westerns and especially it's very obvious evident that it's inspired by George A. Romero's Night Living Dead yeah um, it's very much encapsulates a kind of malaise in the mid 70s going on from like the late, late 60s into the 70s the kind of post-Watergate feeling that the, the ground is crumbling beneath everyone's feet the corruption is going around and but everyone believing that like crime is ruining the streets and like he was really capturing that kind of he's being a really tongue in cheek with the movie because it's like Anyway, it's like set in a, a police precinct. Obviously, um, there's a there's a gang, and they're, they're murdered by the, some of the members are murdered by the police. And then there's a new uh, man who's starting a new precinct, and they are end up being surrounded by the gang who seem to come in droves and droves, um, and they can't contact the outside world. And this LA is kind of this mad wild west of a place, or like wasteland. There seems to be no one, but yeah, it's just like this. You can't. It seems to be like you can't even go outside. It's 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 this kind of hyper, hyper hyperbolic version of LA. Um, and I think he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek as well, Carpenter, with kind of representing people's perception of the fear of crime as well. Well, he is, but he also uses it to unleash one of the most notorious scenes yeah. in a film ever when a young girl eating an ice cream yeah. is shot fucking dead yeah. by this gang to show you how evil they are. It's still shocking to this day. It is, genuinely. It's still shocking. I, when I, I, I don't know, before I watched it the first time, I didn't know, and it, it still shocks. I yeah. only watched this awesome Precinct 13 for the very first time about a year ago, mm. sometime last year, which seems impossible to me, but like I'd seen, I'd experienced a lot of it through osmosis, I guess, but I'd never actually watched it start to finish. Mm. Uh, it's excellent. Yeah. The music goes such a long way, as yeah. as does so much Carpenter stuff. Uh, yeah, my review on Letterboxd here is, let's be honest, that kid had it coming. <laughs> uh, because of our call crackers, she was very annoying. Um, no, it's fabulous. Um, it's a great one. And even like, just that like, the build of it, like just the... Yeah. The little kind of the the, the kind of the almost like um, ping pong drum there, and then the synth obviously coming in. Mm. And yeah, no, you're right. It is extremely Night of Living Dead. Yeah, it was clearly influenced by it because he, he yeah, exactly. It has that kind of sense. just being in one location and being surrounded by a mob. Even like you talk about how evil the gang were, even the police, like it's such a cynical film. Like the start, the police basically kill this gang, like extrajudicial execution style. Like they just murder them. Like it's not like this movie about the good guys, bad guys. It's just about like survival, stuck in a, stuck in a one building and the, the horse. And like that, that dread he gets is so good. It's similar to the kind of dread he gets in the thing, but to kind of use a different uh, fact. I was really torn between picking the first Terminator or this. Yeah. Very similar kind of scores. Two films cut from the same cloth and that. They are technically action films, but clearly influenced by horror, especially Terminator as well. And this one obviously being Romero uh, influenced. Um, it was actually written in three days, the score by Carpenter, performed by Carpenter and a guy called Tommy Lee Wallace. Um, the actor, Tommy Lee Wallace? I don't know. Oh, no, sorry, the direct, there's a director called Tommy Lee Wallace. Maybe it is him. I don't know. It must be him. Yeah. Um, he made the It miniseries, I believe. It was very, you know, oh, yeah. It was very, very early on in the synthesizer kind of thing. There was like, he had to use several banks of synthesizers on top of each other. Um, he had to reset it whenever he wanted to make a new sound. Very time consuming, the actual recording of it. Um, but I also think it's, it's, I picked this one over Terminator just because I think this is the more influential score. It was so early on in synthesizers. It's, that song is a bit of a banger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I also think, like, not even just like that, it's kind of like the incidental music that he plays throughout. There's like that high held synthesizer note that plays throughout the film and it's kind of, always alongside acts of violence and it's always along the acts of like the, the gang and it's just like it, it kind of moves in frequency to determine like how intense the action is or how intense everything is and that kind of something I was really you saw a lot of films afterwards but he does it so well and it really gives the movie its, its dread that little just that little touch of the high synthesizer note yeah really you good keep using the word dread I should note that I haven't picked the film dread but that does have a very good score for an mm. action movie by um, 
Paul Leonard Morgan, I'm seeing here now. And of course, Terminator 1, Terminator 2. I didn't pick those either, which Either is way. blasphemy. But Brad Fiedel and everyone else involved uh, in those movies, the, the the score is fucking incredible. Number three for me, though, um, a real personal Dave favourite. This film recently turned 10 years old. Um, and it's amazing. And the score fucking rules. And this track fucking rules. Here's my number three. Yeah, 2012. 2011, 2012. I don't know what that is. What is it? It's from The Raid. Oh, I was going to pick The Raid 2, maybe. by The Raid Redemption. Um, I was torn between The Raid 2 and the first one. And in the end, I picked this one because I remember just being so jaw on the floor when when this sequence happened. Well, the whole movie, really. Uh, The track is called Drug Lab. The composers behind this one are Mike Shinoda of Linkin Park and Joseph Trapanese, who has worked on every single Joe Kaczynski film apart from Top Gun Maverick Um, (laughs) and lots of other stuff, too. Um, Yeah, so initially, so The Raid, if you don't know, is an Indonesian action film from 2011, uh, 2012. uh, And it was made by a Welsh director called Gareth Evans and essentially there's a sequel called The Raid 2 Berendal which I think is fucking amazing I think both films are just incredible two of the best action films I've ever seen largely due to the work of the insanely talented cast uh, Mm -hmm. led by Iko Uwe an actor who Hollywood has no idea what to do with to this day which is upsetting Um, basically it's uh, it's weird that Dread came out in the same year as this movie because they're basically the same movie it's about a team of SWAT uh, cops or they go to a building to take down a crime lord. It goes horribly wrong. And they are ambushed by the residents of the building who are all villains. And one cop, Iko Uwe's character, has to essentially save the day if he can. And it involves a ton of martial arts. Mm. Everyone in this movie can do incredible martial arts. I think Silat is the name of the particular discipline that is... Um, showcased quite a lot by the actors. And it's super violent. It's super gnarly. Uh, it's incredible, incredibly choreographed, and it's just an incredible thrill ride. It's about an hour and 40 minutes long. It's brilliant. The sequel is about two and a half hours long, and they kind of make it a lot more. They expand mm. the world. They make it more of a crime saga. Uh, I still think it's fantastic. And there is uh, Joe Trapanese returned to do the score for the second one, and like there's a couple of tracks. There's one called Showdown, which is just unbelievable. Then there's a car chase one as well. Uh, the music is as high octane as the action at times and it's it's quite brilliant. But there was, when this was initially composed, there was a couple of Indonesian composers who worked on it. Arya uh, Priyogi and Fehar Uzmekel. I'm sure I'm making a butcher of their pronunciations there. But basically when it was um, being marketed for worldwide distribution, Sony Pictures called up Mike Shinoda and Joe Trapanese and said we want a new score. So I, I actually you know, horrible ignorance here of me, but I've never heard the original version. I've only heard this version. And it really, really suits what you see on the screen. Mike Shinoda said when he was asked if he wanted to get involved, they only had a red band trailer for the film. They put together a couple minutes of footage and put some songs in there. They knew I'd done a little bit of scoring stuff. I got involved with my bandmates when we did the second Transformers movie. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, well, there you go. I mean, like, you know, mm. CV, perfect. Yeah. 
Mike Shinoda says we did a little bit of the score in that but I'd never done a full length score before the guys from Sony said with this movie The Raid we're interested in you scoring it we love the Fort Minor stuff get in and we love the few remixes you did so I thought back about those they're all stuff that are really enjoyable to make really asked me to do things I do naturally and do for fun so it seemed like a good opportunity um, and yeah it worked together with Joe Trapanese apparently the studio were very hands off and they liked what they did and it works I mean the whole point of that movie is it just gets going and that's pretty much it it's intense it's incredible it's super violent uh, I think the Raid films are two of the greatest modern action films ever made I think it's very sad that they never got to finish the trilogy same time though I did see an interview with Gareth Evans, Edwards. It's Evans, right? Because there's also I, Gareth. I always mix up as well. Yeah, I think it's Gareth Evans. Um, he did an interview a while ago saying this is what it would have been, and he gave like the plot about I did it. See that, yeah. Oh. And it sounded not great. Oh, so yeah. I'm sure it would have been great because it would be hard to screw this up. But mm. yeah, I mean, treat yourself if you've never seen these movies. They Definitely. are. I, I assume any any action fan has because they are extremely popular and deservedly so. Mm. And the music goes a long way. Yeah, I don't have much to add. You kind of summed it up pretty well there. That's I mean, okay. Yeah, but like, yeah, uh, like talking about the third one, the second one being as good as it was was a miracle in itself. So that's good enough for me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, great music. Good music again. Really serviced the action really well. Um. Some of the most insane things I've ever seen in any film is in these films, especially the, uh, the first one. And like the, the three way fight scene near the end of that film, and the music, and it's incredible as well. Yeah. And the three way fight scene always rubbed me the wrong way because it's like two good guys versus one bad guy. That's bad pro wrestling. <laughs> You can't have that. It should be Prison two rules. Yeah, I mean, no. But yet he, he's, but you he's need still two, two bad guys on, 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 on. Yeah, the bad guys on. But, but, like, but that makes it so good, though. If you were a wrestling booker, you wouldn't do that. You'd be like, it's two villains versus one good guy. That's how you get the crowd on side. It makes no sense to have two good guys beating down a bad guy. Then, mm. then your sympathy goes to the bad guy. Yeah. So half a star knocked off the raid. <laughs> anyway, what's your number two? So my next one is definitely a big change of, change of pace than what we've done before. All very muscular. Um, just kind of really in-your-face scores we've had so far. But this is the complete other opposite end of that spectrum. Um, started off a big change in Hollywood. Uh, well, for a brief brief moment in Hollywood, it started, started off a new trend, I think. Um, but here it is anyway. So oh, yeah, that is? I've been asked off mic by both of you, do I know what this is? And Adam said, I said, no, I don't know what it is, but it sounds a lot like something that I think it is. And Adam says, I think I know what you think it is. <laughs> I don't think it's Last of the Mohicans, but it's mm. clearly very similar in lots of ways. No, there is a, there's definitely elements of that to it. I was going to really going to pick that up. Which, thought, by the way, Last of the Mohicans, stunning. Did, did you pick that? No, no I didn't no. pick it, no. I thought you would, so I didn't pick it. No, uh, no this is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Forgive yeah. me, there forgive is, me. There is that to it, though. And obviously it's very different to the, what we've heard before. Um, very different kind of uh, action film. It's a very good to be even kind of martial arts film the one you just mentioned. It's a, a wushui film, wushui film, the the kind of uh, martial arts film that these are. Kind of kick-started a very brief trend of in Hollywood of kind of those wire work driven martial arts films, different, more about the kind of movement, graceful movement of masters than opposed to the biggest hits they make. It's um, like a dance, yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of a, a unique film that it was like a massive hit critically, uh, financially, 
and had a la- had a lasting influence in Hollywood in terms of because it was one of the first big non-English language films to have all that. Um, so Ang Lee's film, not, a, not again, not an action movie director. He'd done like the Ice Storm at that point, some movies like that, um, and done some other movies. In his, 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 is he from Taiwan? I want to say. Yeah, I didn't ever know, but Ang Lee, um, set in 19th century, Qing Dynasty China, it's kind of more of, it's not really historically accurate, uh, it's more like a imagined version of that 19th century China. He's Taiwanese. Taiwanese, yeah. God, thank God I got thank that. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, the, the plot, it's kind of more of a melodrama even than, a, than it is a, an action movie. It's about, these, there's two sword masters played by Chai Yun-Fat and Michelle Yeoh, um, they work for a security company, I guess, but the 19th century version of that. They, they are kind of bodyguards for to them. They, they, one of the things they guard is this sword called the Green Sword of Destiny. The sword of Destiny, anyway. Um, and they, it's, they, they love each other, but they can't express that love for each other because of loyalty to uh, the, the ce- a deceased friend that uh, Chai Yun Fat's character uh, was engaged to. There's also a, a young assassin named Jen. She's kind of eager to prove herself. She's kind of a her, she's a kind of a governor's daughter, um, but in reality, she is. Uh, it's not really a spoiler to say that she's actually also secretly her own, and it's a young assassin who's maybe even more talented than, but naiver, more have no, has more naivety. Um, it is kind of a complicated plot. Lots of lost love, subterfuge, and betrayal, and it's told through like ominous glances and flashbacks. But all that being said, it has some of the greatest action scenes I think up there with the Ray we're talking about in movie history, especially one bet- between Jen and Michelle Yeoh's character. Uh, Zhang Zhiji plays Jen. I remember now. Yeah. Um, there's one, especially when they're 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 fighting each other and they're picking up the different weapons on the wall. And it is for me, maybe one of the top. Three ever action films, scenes in the movie. Um, but we're here to talk about the score. Uh, very, very different to the rest. It's more composed by a guy called Tan Dun. He did a few of those uh, Hu Shui movies. In there. He did also the one for Hero, which is also excellent. Um, which is, uh, I really recommend listening to that as well. This, these both you can just listen to. You don't need the movie to listen to these as much maybe as other ones. But like, they're just gorgeous pieces of music. Uh, the cello there was played by maybe the world's most famous cellist, Yo Ma. I mean, oh, wow. is there a more famous one? I don't know. Um, that kind of that kind of winding cello sound you hear throughout is kind of a motif that kind of blend that kind of bonds the three characters together, three leads together. You know, they were kind of they're at odds in terms of like their sides on the table, so to speak. Um, but it, it, they 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 shouldn't be really kind of thing. And it's kind of that kind of it has that kind of beautiful like aching sound, kind of like the it's kind of wistful and it gives that ache in your sound of like heartbreak. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a gorgeous score, and I think uh, the the song fa- wasn't farewell, but the song obviously farewell is is, not, is like the one that's always played. If you ever listen to like movies and musicals and RT Lyric FM on like a <laughs> Sunday or Saturday, whatever day that's on, um, they'll always play the farewell once or twice, and it plays during a very pivotal scene where, without giving too much away, it's like either a character's demise or salvation, depending how you read it. But uh, it's a gorgeous score. Uh, one of my, obviously one of my favorites because I picked it as number two. But uh, if you just want to have a really nice. Good for working with as well. If you're in something to work with, scores are always good to work with, but this is especially a gorgeous piece of music. Nice, man. Yeah, no, scores are great to work with. And I have a big score playlist on the go, which I must put up in. Uh, I think I've put it up before on Patreon, but I'll put it up in the next preview episode for sure. Um, because I find that, like, yeah, instrumental music and film music can be sometimes all you fucking need to get through the day. So um, here's one for you, right? Because I, I went back and forth in this and I haven't picked the motion picture Heat that I am obsessed with because I went to, again, aforementioned Mick Pope, and I went, would you describe Heat as an action film? And he wrote back and said, crime drama. So I was like, yeah. I mean, it has that massive action sequence in the middle of it, Mm. but it's not really an action film. 
And I've talked about heat enough, so heat didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, but, but we're at my runner-up now anyway, so my number two. Um, you could also make the argument that this is more of a thriller series, but Dahi talked me into this the other day. Uh, here's my number two, and can you tell me what series this is from? My guess is the Bourne films? Correct. Yes. It is, in fact, the yes. theme from The Bourne Identity. Definitely Craig in the next quiz. Uh, <laughs> John Powell, the English composer, and also a student of Hans Zimmer as well. Mm. Uh, he's actually best known for animated work. So he's worked on Ants, Chicken Run, Robots, th- three Ice Age films, mm. Happy Feet, How to Train Your Dragon, all kinds of stuff. But he mm. also did this. And interestingly enough... Uh, he wasn't the first choice. Carter Burwell had worked on the Bourne movie and I guess got the boot for whatever reason or it just didn't work out. Um, and they picked up John Powell. He jumped on it and put it together. I mean, like, I think the best thing about this is that it really signifies that film and how globetrotting it is mm. and how 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 it's always moving. Yeah. You know, this is literally like, you know, I can't hear that music without seeing shots of Matt Damon going through a crowd yeah. or something kind of, you know, very kind of... Uh, between rooftops. Yeah, rooftops uh, or even like, you know, like just that sequence in the third one with the Paddy Considine in the train station. Mm. You know, like fast moving parts mm. and I think and, and a certain level of tension kind of ticking down. Uh, here is an excerpt of John Powell doing an interview in which he discusses some interesting specificity about how he associates this music. One of the things I always said to Matt Damon when I met him was that um, I owed my career to his ass. Ah, nice. Because the, <laughs> the way he walked. So thoughtful. It, well, it was. It's, you know, it was, there was, and it was Doug Lyman said to me, it was, it was that cue that he played as the bank heist. He's, he's, just, he's coming out of the bank, and I'd written really kind of fast action music, and, and Doug Lyman looked at me and goes, why the hell are you doing that? I said, because he's getting away. He goes, look at him. Look what he's doing. I said, he's getting away. He said, no, no, he's not getting away. He's walking away. <laughs> I love that. And so <laughs> suddenly realized that was, that, was, that was the character that was different about uh, you know, him. He, he had this confidence, which he knew not from where it came, but he had this confidence to slow down at the times when everybody else would scramble. And that was, just, I think, the key piece of music that I had to find for him. And that's where that that so there you go. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like that, he really understood the character as well because it is it is true. And that music clip you played really uh, suits that really well. What you were saying about how it's it's like it's not about somebody. It's not obtrusive. Somebody like somebody had a. It's not like the kind of scores you're playing earlier, which are very obtrusive. Not it's not a criticism, yeah, but like you use the word muscular. Yeah, it's in your face. It's like something that's in the background and, and complements the uh, the more light footed action of the Bourne films and more of the character as well. Someone who is has a swagger, but no, what well, he said knows not where it comes from which I like yeah and it's like it could work for you know shots of people in a control room on computers as you get in those movies it could work for him handing in his passport those kind of cross-cutting montages it works for you know here's an assassin being brought into the the play all that kind of stuff it works perfectly they're good fucking movies yeah. um, so in terms of what happened with Carter Burwell or Burwell I don't know um, 
Doug, Doug Lyman just wasn't digging it. So John Powell said in an interview in the UK Independent in 2014, they'd already spent money on a big orchestra and the soundtrack was good. It just wasn't what Doug was looking for. He wanted something he hadn't heard before. Everything else was doing big, so I decided to go small. For budgetary reasons, my score started without an orchestra at all. We stuck some strings on top of the end for, for cinematic feel and everything was sort of an accident. Um, and he says that these days he can't really watch TV because everything sounds like this kind of score. I don't think he's bigging himself up too much here. He's just saying that, like, mm. you know, it is for a spy kind of stuff and thrilling kind of stuff it's just all very similar he said I can even tell which piece they've been using as a temporary track because I can hear where it changes in the form and the structure of it but that's standard practice uh, it isn't just my work on Bourne that they're ripping off it's the stunt guys the editing style the cinematography everything so I guess it's speaking to the overall influence of those movies and they were massively influential lest we forget would would Casino Royale have been Casino Royale if it wasn't for the Bourne no, movies definitely. kind of going in that direction and itself having a really good it score it also have an impact on that we emerged with the Mission Impossible movies as well. Probably, yeah. A, a fair argument. Although, earlier on, when you were talking about the skydiving sequence in Point Break, I was thinking, a 1991-era Tom Cruise saw that <laughs> and said, someday. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, board movies, man. I actually have a hankering to go rewatch them because I enjoyed that music so much. What's your number one? So, yes, it's really funny you mentioned John Powell because he was once in the running and maybe even did some work for the score of this before it was scrapped. I'm not really sure of the details, but just serendipitous. Uh, when you mentioned number one, it was the first thing that came to mind, which is I always think that's the first, that's the number one. I thought you might mention this as well. You haven't so far, but it was just simple, simply put, it was what I thought of first. Well, not just one of the best action movies the last 15 years, 10 years, one of the best movies for me. Good choice, Mark. Adam, could you do me a favour and could you go ahead and play my number one, please? That's perfect crossover. I literally think it was the end of my piece was the start of yours. Uh, Possibly, possibly. yeah. It is, of course, Mad Max Fury Road. The composer is Tom Hulkenberg or Junkie XL, Mm. as he goes. I wonder if if he's uh, dropping that, you know, because bad word, Junkie. But um, yeah, here we go. I mean, like, it came to my mind pretty quickly. And I also felt that you simply cannot do a list like this in post this film because Fury Road, for the most part, is just one big action sequence. And... Yeah, this track, by the way, is called Brothers in Arms. It's the extended version. And uh, on the rare occasions I'm, I'm I'm running on a treadmill in the gym, this is in my list because like it's run through walls music. But uh, you had picked it as well, so please go. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned for me, is one, it's it's a perfect film in, in, in what it sets, sets out to do. It's a perfect action film. Is it 90 minutes? 
I, I think I, it's two hours. I think it's is it? My, my brain is. It, it I will look like it up. Nine. I will look like it up. Tight ninety, but it might be, it might be two hours. Adam is looking it up. Feels I, like a tight ninety. I'm it's, pretty sure it's, it's two it's hours. It's only two hours. That is tight ninety. <laughs> um, I think there's multiple composers attached to it for a while. There was a long time trying to find the right music. Two hours. Yeah. Long time trying to find the right composers. Mentioned John Powell. I'm a guy called Marco Beltrami. Yeah, Marco Beltrami has worked on the Scream films. He was of Wes Craven. Yeah, I think this is a really good example of real director and a composer really working in tandem for the same goal. I know all films like that, but this one especially because I think uh, George Miller really, really wanted the music to be right. And like, he wanted uh, fucking everything to yeah, be right. I mean, yeah, this is one, one of the most meticulous yeah, yeah, films for, ever made. For, yeah, for, yeah, exactly. So for like he, Junkie XL, he worked or Hulkenberg worked, worked on it from like for a year, from August 2013 till August 2014. He said, when you're so early in the, in the game, you have so much room for experimentation. Uh, he was obviously he was inspired by like real classic, more classic Hollywood scores, especially Bernard Herrmann. Um, it's funny you both picked that part because that is really Brian Herman's those kind of like orchestral staccato strings yeah um, like you think of the start they're chasing you Star of Psycho or the in, the the Star Psycho in North by Northwest. You really hear that that true line through that. Um, the majority of the scores, well, he did himself. He performed it himself, which is insane. Um, and one of the things I, it's like so good. It is like the it's the blood that rush, uh, goes through like Mad Max's body. It's like the the fuel of the engine of the car as it burns and goes all throughout the car. Like it is that it, it powers the entire film. It's almost I feel like it's always there in some capacity, like yeah. along with the film. Like yeah. maybe it's not, but I feel in my brain it's, it feels like that. It's weird because like like the film has an effect that it's such a barrage but there are like in re-watching it there are moments of, of quiet time there yeah. are moments where the foot literally comes off the gas for a while but for the most part this film is generally just one big chase sequence um, it's weird you clearly adore the film mm. I love it yeah. but I've never been able to go beyond four stars in my you know there's, I don't know there's something about it that I just don't I think it, I think it is a work of art mm. legitimately and I think it should be held up there it was nominated for best film I think as well yeah, I, won, like, I won the most Oscars that year did it? Did, all, all technical stuff, all yeah. Technical well, it stuff, should, yeah. because, I mean, yeah. again, the sheer level of what was pulled off is is kind of mind-blowing. Mm. Like, I don't really understand how they did it in a lot of cases. Yeah. But, yeah, for some reason, I can't go five stars. I don't know why. That's my own weird kind of mental mm. block. I mean, like, because you could argue, like, it's just an action scene and there's no real characters. Mm. I wouldn't agree with that necessarily. And I do enjoy the performances. Mm. I think Tom Hardy's really good in it. And also, highly controversial to say, but I will say it, yes, he's a horrible person, but... I've always maintained that Mel Gibson does have a pretty incredible screen presence, mm. and if things were better, quote unquote, sure would have liked to have seen him in that role because the older version of Mad Max, as opposed to just here, yeah. I, I like Tom Hardy a lot. Yeah, I think he does a really good job here, even yeah. if at times, again, it's yet another example of Tom Hardy's doing a weird voice for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> Although he has got very little dialogue. Yeah, but yeah, not necessarily pro Mel Gibson, but I just think you know it would have been interesting to see him in that role. Uh, Charlie's Theron's movie yeah. anyway, so. Uh, yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, even the, even the, obviously, I don't really like Mad Max one, but Mad Max two I love. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange film. Mad Max one, it is strange. Yeah. I saw them both for the first time yeah. um, around the time of this coming out. Possibly, Cineworld did like a double bill, and I'd never seen either of them before. And I watched one after the other, mm. and I did not know what the first one was going to be at all. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but the reason I think this is probably the best score is because more than any other score it is serves I keep saying serving the action it, it serves the action and you notice it in a good way um, one thing I people always make fun of the guitar guy oh the well, they don't make fun of him the doof warrior he yeah. looks like he's in Slipknot I, I think he's kind of crucial to the whole thing and what we're talking about because that and there's also drums in there it's like because he play he plays the score at times, quote unquote. But he's, he's in, in the universe of So like the it's almost like the diegetic, the non diegetic score, which is Junkie XL score, and the diegetic music, which is a fancy way to say the music that uh, exists within the universe of the yeah, film. Yeah, lives in the world. Of it's film. like yeah, yeah. 
it's like that bleeds into also there's drums as well which people are playing it's like it's like the the, the it's a, it makes it a really immersive experience it kind of bleeds into the reality of the film the music we're hearing bleeds into the reality of the film which i think is really clever and all, all adds up to the kind of the sense of like the gritty even though it's a ludicrous film where you know it's insane like you know but it really feeds into the kind of sense of gritty realism it goes for for what kind of genre piece mm-hmm. it is and i think that is really just the guitar guy is really clever at that and, and it and it, it, it it's a trick to your brain, I think. I think that's why he puts it in there. It's and also it, a callback to, you know, like Roman legions and having yeah, yeah. drummers and marchers and, 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 and trumpeters and stuff. Like, it's like a band was a part of an army. Like, I yeah. mean, like it's, it's got a reason to be there. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> and he looks like he should be in Slipknot. And when, he, so. when, he, when he extends when they're fighting around him, it's even funnier. Cause oh, yeah, <laughs> and he's all that wire work going yeah. on. Um, I think Nick Zenner of the AAS was involved in some of the music production on this as well. Mm-hmm. I think he worked with with uh, Hulkenberg on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's relentless, um, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's it's so important. It's such a, an integral part of this thing where everything is exploding at all times yeah. and things are always fucking happening. Yeah. And it's I can understand why somebody would go see this movie and just be like, "Not for me." It was just it's so overwhelming, mm. but it is a genuine work of art. Have you seen the Chrome version? No, aka black and white. I guess. I, I, I I remember I watched the black and white version of Parasite and I just thought this is pointless. I never saw that either because again I was like I love this film and I don't see why I need a black and white version. It, it takes away a lot the works with the movie. I, I just know. don't understand why, why yeah. it exists and with this I one do. as well with, with Mad Max because it's like the world is so colourful mm. like whether it's the Doof Warrior whether it's you know the the are they called the Valhalla Boys? I can't remember. They should be. <laughs> um, like oh, no why are they called oh god again someone's screaming down their phone right now. Uh, I'm going to look it up. Uh, Nicholas Holt plays one of them yeah, anyway, he's and, good and he's very good. In it. Yeah. Everyone's very good, and, and of course, this you know behind the scenes stuff. If no one knows, the Tom Hardy and Charlie Theron did not get along. Mm, have no. talked about it a few times in recent times. No, yeah, War didn't. Boys is it? Uh, War Pups. War Pups. I feel like they're War Boys. Anyway, Charlie Theron and Tom Hardy like. Got into a fight on set, I think. Yeah. Well, like, I think they were actually hated. Yeah, like she broke his nose or something by accident, quote unquote. But like they, they didn't get on at all. I think by the end of it, they had kind of worked it had out. Had a mutual respect, yeah. thing, perhaps. But they've talked about it in interviews before, and he has said, like, you know, I, you know, I could have behaved better, and you know, you know, blah blah blah. But they clearly had different working styles, and he mm. was probably being very method, I would imagine. Mm. Correction, it is War Boys. It is War Boys. War Boys. Yeah, I knew it was. Duran yeah, Duran tribute, I presume. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's our top five. Yeah. That is top five action movie scores. I like it. I, enjoy I feel it. amped right yeah. now. Point. <laughs> Point. I'm hung over. Um, took the edge off, though. But mm. also, yeah, also fucking um, the hand zimmer, you know, I only wanted to have one hand zimmer in there, so it was tough not to pick Broken Arrow yeah. and pick that amazing... Um, How much stuff I didn't pick? John Travolta's signature theme. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mark Conroy, you finally did it. You've finally been no encore. How do you feel? I, I, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like two periods of my life, before and after. You know, Amazing. It's changed. Amazing. I was going to say about uh, Hans Zimmer. Hack. Uh, <laughs> James <laughs> Horner is, is way worse than Hans Zimmer for stealing from stuff. Is that right? And if you want to, he only steals from himself all the time. He's, he has his own Wikipedia page about it, a section of Wikipedia page. Listen to this main score for Enemy of the Gates and then listen to the John Williams famous theme for Schindler's List if you have the chance tonight because they are the same thing. I don't know how he got away with it because I reached, <laughs> I watched Enemy of the Gates recently and I was like, how did he get away with this? But that's all. But thank you for having me on. I, was, I really appreciate it. Um, oh, listen, you're welcome back anytime. Okay, list ticked. And uh, we'll, 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 we'll welcome back Craig next week, of course, when he comes back from his Italian jaunt. And, uh, and our very own Hans Zimmer, of course, over here, Sonic Architect Adam keeping us all in check 
Uh, and Sonic Eckert Adam actually has one more clip to play that I forgot to play earlier on in the show. So uh, it's patreon.com slash noencore. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends about the show. My name is Dave Hanrady. This has been Noencore. There will be Noencore. And to play us out this week, uh, a clip I forgot to play in the news section. So we've all, you know... We've all had confidence at one stage in our lives, but have we ever been this confident? I don't know. And coming as it does, hot on the heels of the, the resurgence of Kate Bush's wonderful running up that hill. Oh. God grant me the confidence of Rita Ora performing this track in Brazil, I believe. Uh, you're you're going to lose something without the clip, because at the end of the clip, she literally lies down on the stage and has a very smug look in her face. But this is certainly a version of running up that hill, and I hope you enjoy it. Goodbye. Be running up that Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.